Love's world in sports. Let's be great. Let's be great. An entertaining and provocative look into the world of sports and beyond. Play our game. All right? Play hard, but stay poised. Please feel free to go over to Apple iTunes and rate and review. Your feedback is welcome. Go rock this thing, huh? Love you, man. Go get it. And now, the host of the program from the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area, Wendell Wallace. And welcome to Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Konnichiwa, shalom. Wassalamu alaikum, my brothers and sisters. Bonjour, bonsoir, monsieur, mademoiselle, que pasa, mi amigos. Wendell Wallace, Wendell's World of Sports. So glad that you could be with us. A lot of things to discuss today in the world of sports. Before I begin with that, I hope everybody is doing well. I hope everybody is staying healthy. I hope everything and everybody is doing what they need to do to keep this world, to keep this community, to keep your parents, to keep your loved ones, to keep your wife, to keep your husband, to keep your kids safe. Wear a mask, six feet apart, be smart, be reasonable, use common sense, listen to the specialists, listen to the experts and viruses, listen to what they have to say. Don't be stupid. Don't be stubborn. Don't be ignorant. Do the right thing, do the common sense thing, because I want to get back to being somewhat normal as soon as possible. So please, let's go ahead and let's do the right thing and see what we can do to get this world back to where it was before this horrible pandemic happened. So I hope everybody's doing safe and hope everybody is doing what they need to do in that regard. In the On the program, on the podcast today, a lot of things to discuss. We're going to do the regular football weekend. We're going to talk about what's happening in the NFL in week 10. I'm going to speak a little bit about what happened in the uh, college football week 11. I'm going to uh, basically leave the NBA alone. I know Anthony Davis just um, opted out of his contract. I know Chris Paul was traded. I know James Harden wants to go to Brooklyn. I know the Milwaukee Bucks are doing everything they can for Giannis to sign and those guys be the leaders in winning a championship. John Horn the GM of the Milwaukee Bucks doing a fantastic job in trying to convince uh, Giannis that Milwaukee is the place that he should stay, that he should want to be for the majority of his career, for the prime years of his career. So teams like Toronto and Dallas and Miami and Golden State and any other team who's looking to see what they can do to swindle Giannis from the Milwaukee Bucks do what the Miami Heat did with the Cleveland Cavaliers back when LeBron James told everybody that he was going to be taking his talents to South Beach. Now with the Milwaukee Bucks, and I'll get into it a little bit later on whether this was the move that's going to propel the Milwaukee Bucks to win championships, but at least as far as Giannis is concerned, who for all reports is a guy who wants to stay in Milwaukee, that what the Bucks are doing is showing him that, you know what, we're really dedicated and we're really committed to winning basketball games not just basketball games but championships and Giannis from all reports is just like look man just show me some confidence and just show me that you have a plan that you're trying aggressively to go ahead and win a championship and I'll be uh, receptive very receptive to staying long term with the Milwaukee Bucks sort of like what the Houston Rockets did with James Harden all them years as I mentioned in my last podcast about how they tried to do everything move heaven and earth to make James Harden happy and put a championship team around him and now James Harden is turning down a 103 million dollar extension to stay with the Houston Rockets as of right now so as I mentioned before not going to get too much into that because 
this could all be cockety poop in terms of discussing James Harden going to the Brooklyn Nets and what would it be like for him to be teamed up with Kevin Durant, his old teammate in Oklahoma City, and Kyrie Irving, and what would that mean for Steve Nash and his stress level and his mental uh, mental fragility if you got those three guys together. So all of that stuff I'll be talking about in my next podcast when we break down what's happening with the NBA draft, what player went where, and who did what, who moved up. I don't know enough about Anthony Edwards or LaMelo Ball or James Wiseman or any of those guys to sit here and talk about breaking those guys down. I can listen to Chad Ford all I want to, but until I see which team, which player is going to, and which trades are made, especially now when you have such a shortened NBA offseason that these guys are not going to have the advantage of going to summer camp or summer league to get themselves a little taste of of what it's like to play professional basketball out here in Vegas. They're not going to have an opportunity as a full offseason to get get themselves ready with their training and their weightlifting and just getting themselves acclimated for the next journey of their professional working lives. So, It'll be a little bit different, but I want to save that podcast, probably coming out Friday night or Saturday morning, so we'll see. But I will be glued to the television to watch the NBA draft uh, this evening, and then after that, we're watching a little AEW wrestling, see what's happening with that. So my uh, my schedule for the evening is set. What about yours? Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. So yes, the NBA will be pushed for another day, even though in this podcast, I will be mentioning, breaking down a little bit about what the Milwaukee Bucks uh, did with the trades of, uh, of to uh, better their team. But, you know, we have the NFL Week 10. A new player has entered the race for the most valuable player. And not only has he entered the race, he's gaining speed, Kyler Murray. Which is the best team? Who? Well, we're talking about the NFC now. I mean, we have a really good idea in terms of the elite teams, the top teams, the favorites in the AFC to win the conference and make it to the Super Bowl, whether it be the Kansas City defending champions, whether we're speaking about the Pittsburgh Steelers, even maybe a a wild card, someone like uh, the Tennessee Titans or someone like the Indianapolis Colts, somewhere around those lines. But for the most part, we have a pretty clear tier in the AFC of who is the favorite and who are the wild cards and who are the dark horses and who are the next elite and all of those type of uh, discussions. But in the NFC, who do we got? The the Rams now, the Los Angeles Rams, they're back in the discussion after beating Seattle at home. And all of a sudden, what's going on with Seattle? I'll get into that a little bit later on the podcast. The Tampa Bay Bucks, they rebounded from the beatdown that happened to them Sunday night at the hands of the uh, New Orleans Saints at home. And they delivered a beatdown themselves at Carolina or the, um, uh, against Carolina this past Sunday. The New Orleans Saints, who are still the number one seed in the NFC, they beat San Francisco with James Winston, Jameis Winston replacing Drew Brees in the second half. Brees suffered, what, four or five cracked ribs and a collapsed lung. So he'll be out for a couple of weeks. What did that mean for the New Orleans Saints moving forward with Jameis 30 interceptions last year? Winston as their quarterback, Green Bay slap walked through their win against Jacksonville. So here we go with the weekly rankings here. As of week 10 right now, who is the best team in the NFC? That doesn't mean they're the best team in two weeks. It doesn't mean they're going to be the best team next week. It doesn't mean they're going to be the, you know, the best team when the playoff starts. I'm just going to get, as of right now, a feel, a thought 
of who was the best team in the NFC. We'll go ahead and discuss that. Notice I didn't mention anything. I mentioned the Rams. I mentioned the Buccaneers. I mentioned the Saints. I mentioned the Green Bay Packers. Notice I didn't mention anything about the NFC East. The NFC East is not in the discussion when we're speaking about the possible conference contenders. Get out. Get lost, hit the road, Philadelphia, and don't you come back no more, no more until you show that you can win some games. And I'm talking about Washington, Dallas, and of course the Giants. Hit the road, NFC East, and don't you come back no more, no more, no more, no more. The worst division in any North American professional sports league right now. It's probably been like that for years. Been, it remains a befuddling, amusing, pathetic joke. When you speak about the Philadelphia Eagles still in the lead in the NFC East after 10 weeks with a 3-6-1 record. Followed by the Giants who are only a half game back at 3-7. and seven. And then you got the Washington Snyder Skins and the Dallas Cowboys sitting there at 2-7. and seven. What a clown joke, disgrace of a league for the year 2020. The Eagles again losing to the New York Giants. 27-17, Daniel Jones threw for 244 yards, ran for a touchdown, Wayne uh, Gailman Jr. had two touchdown runs. Again, the Giants now improved for 3-7 and seven with their stre- second straight win. Hey! <laughs> they beat the Giants in the uh, Snyder skins. Hey! All right, hey, bring back Sil Sims and Lawrence Taylor and Bill Parcells. They snapped their eight-game losing streak against Philadelphia. Hey! How do you like that, Dick Vermeil and Harold Carmichael and Wilbur Montgomery? How about that? The Eagles, I'm sorry, they're 3-5-1. and one. <laughs> How about that? Dallas, Washington, 2-7. and seven. <laughs> Jeez, man. Could, could the Eagles win the division at 6-9-1? 5 10-1? man. Oh, Doug Peterson and Carson Wentz. Peterson went on the, um, the uh, local talk show in Philadelphia after the, you know, his Monday morning, Monday morning, you know, chat along on the radio when he's sitting up there talking about I'm pissed off and I'm angry and I can't believe this and this is bullshit and this is nonsense. He didn't say bullshit, of course, but, you know, basically that was the tone. That was the, you know, that was what he basically what he was talking about. I'm upset and I can't believe this and I'm pissed off and, you know, Eagle fans and Philadelphia, you guys have a right to be angry and, you know, throw all your anger, throw all your venom, throw all your vitriol, throw it all at me. I can take it. I'm a big boy. I put my pants on one leg at a time. But after I put my pants on, I'll go out and lose to the New York Giants. But, uh, you know, basically he's saying all the right things. But, you know, action speaks louder than words. And every year we speak about, you know, NFL coaching openings. And it seems like every year while there's always the, you know, inevitables, during the regular season, this coach is done. This team is no longer responding to the coach. And the writing's on the wall as soon as the last game is over. Black Monday. And I hate that use that term, Black Monday, because I don't know what's anything. Black is always a, you know, a word that's used for negativism. I don't know. You know, I know exactly why. But so I try to stray away from that. So, you know, on Pink Slip Monday, there's always teams, four or five teams, that are just like, yeah, you're done. You're gone. Some teams don't even wait for that. Some teams, it's like 15 seconds after the last game is over. Yeah, you're done. Fired. Get get lost. See a scram. But um, there's always a surprise team or there's always a coach who surprises us by going, oh, really? He's, he's, uh, he's stepping down or this, that, and the other. I mentioned before, and, you know, maybe, I don't know. I went on this whole deal about the possibility of um, we, we might see, if not this offseason, but maybe at the latest Two years from now, one year after this, that Bill Belichick 
might be stepping down. I mentioned the fact of how just he's been doing such un-Bill Belichick type things in terms of doing commercials, in terms of, you know, in the, in the off season, he was on the ESPN, not ESPN, but the NFL Network did a top 100 of players of all time and at different positions. And Belichick was on that show with Rich Eisen and Chris Collinsworth and was breaking down the um, best players and all those type of things. He, this season in the game against the Denver Broncos, he was mic'd up. He's been a little bit more forthcoming in his uh, press conferences after the game is over in his weekly press conference. So I'm, I'm just thinking to myself, man, is Bill just kind of like looking at the mortality of his NFL coaching career and then just some things he's just saying, oh, you know, fuck it. Maybe I need to start transitioning to some things that I might want to do when football is over. And that decision is going to come sooner rather than later. So I wouldn't be surprised if one of those surprise teams that are looking for a coach or are going to be moving Josh McDaniel from the offensive coordinator position, going to promote him from OC to the head coach. I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, that situation happened at the end of the season in New England. And another team would be the Philadelphia Eagles. I mean, it's nice that Doug Peterson won a Super Bowl and that gives you a little leeway. That gives you a, a little bit longer leash. But after winning the Super Bowl, exactly what he's done and what has he done. And with Carson Wentz, there's another guy in 2017. This guy, before he tore his ACL against the Los Angeles Rams, this guy was the front runner for the MVP award in this second season. And ever since then, he has regressed mightily. And with that contract that he's given, I know it's not like a contract in baseball or basketball. It's not fully guaranteed all the money that he's getting. But man, I, I still think that Carson Wentz still has the talent somewhere in there is a guy who can be a franchise quarterback and win you championships and be that guy that can be uh, a generational great quarterback when everything is said and done, when he finally retires in his generation of quarterbacks, that he was a top five guy. He's somewhere in there. I'm, I'm not ready for the Philadelphia Eagles if I'm a fan of theirs. I'm not ready for that team to turn the uh, franchise over to Jalen Hurts. Jalen Hurts who only showed one season that he could actually pass the ball down the field when he played for Lincoln Riley at uh, Oklahoma when he transferred from Alabama. Now the um, Philadelphia Eagles and Jeffrey Lurie have so much faith in Carson, excuse me, in uh, Jalen Hurts, maybe they should fire Doug Peterson and throw a whole bunch of money to try to get Lincoln Riley. But since I don't think that's the case, and I still think that the Eagles are invested to see what they can do to bring out the best of Carson Wentz, if this season continues to go along and he continues to play like he's playing, it wouldn't surprise me. It wouldn't shock me if Doug Peterson was a guy who was no longer coaching the Eagles for the 2021 season, for the upcoming 2021 season. So those are some of the things that I'm going to be discussing here on Wendell's World of Sports, the podcast. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. College football week 11. Boy, what a difference a week makes. Remember a couple of weeks ago, I was on the podcast, which was mine, Wendell's World of Sports. Thank you. But I was on a, uh, I was on my podcast, and I was after the uh, Michigan Wolverines had lost to Michigan State at home to a dysfunctional Michigan State team. Uh, Michigan State still trying to figure out what they're all about with a new coach in Mel Tucker being one of the few black head coaches in college football. Man, I'm sure hoping that... Uh, he succeeds because it looks like we're going to be down a couple of uh, black in, uh, black college football coaches if things continue to go the way they're going in Vanderbilt. But, um, yeah, so losing 
to Michigan State. And I was speaking about, you know, here when's the discussion going to start coming up about Jim Harbaugh and Jim Harbaugh's not getting it done and Jim Harbaugh's going to be fired or Jim Harbaugh's going to be looking for a place to escape to get back to the NFL. And my argument during that podcast was Jim Harbaugh, if I'm Michigan, I, I still keep Harbaugh around. Yes, I know that he hadn't beaten Ohio State. Yes, I know that he hasn't done well against Michigan State. Yes, I know he hasn't made it to the Rose Bowl. Yes, I know he hasn't won the Big East, uh, the big, not only the Big East, but also the Big Ten Conference outright. Yes, I understand all those things. But here is a guy who still has a winning percentage over 70%. Here is a guy who is still putting you in positions with recruiting that you should be improving, that you should be getting better. Here's a guy that if you take a look at his winning percentage and compare them to the other coaches that have been head coaches at the University of Michigan, that the percentage is not really that horrible. And my last argument in why he should keep, why Michigan should have kept Jim Harbaugh two weeks ago was, who else are you going to get? Who else are you getting? Urban Meyer isn't walking through that door, folks. Bo Schembechler ain't walking through that door, folks, unless you go pick up, go to his grave site and dig him out. Who else, is, who else are you going to get? Who is a better coach right now for Michigan than Jim Harbaugh? Especially, and this is what I was saying a couple of weeks ago, especially if Michigan is going to be so hell-bent to go with a Michigan man now, they deviated from the uh, from that process when they got out and got Brady Hoke and hired uh, Rich Rodriguez. But, you know, we speak about, you know, the Michigan way and the Michigan man and all that kind of stuff. If you're still going to keep to those qualifications – to be your coach of the team, well, who are you going to get that's going to be better than Jim Harbaugh? So I was like, give the man a couple of more years. Let's see what he can do. And then if you need to make a change, then go ahead. And I also had the discussion a couple of weeks ago on my podcast about Jim Harbaugh saying that who's what's going to come first, him running back to the NFL for a job or Michigan saying, you know what, this is not working out. And those guys come to a mutual understanding in terms of those guys need to sever the relationship that they have between football coach and university. But uh, so that was my blah, blah, blah a couple of weeks ago. What a difference a couple of weekends make, right? (laughs) I just said, you know, forget the fact that he's won 70% of his games. Forget the fact that he's 48 and 20. Forget all that nonsense. After watching the Michigan University of Michigan performance on Saturday against Wisconsin, we might have to start having those discussions. Now, next week, they get a a get-out-of-jail-free card. They get found money card when they play Rutgers. So who knows, man? Sometimes it's just a little spark that ignites an inferno. Uh, for a program, for a team, for a season. And, you know, if you're going to get yourself, if you want to take out all your anger, if you want to take out all your embarrassment and your frustration and everything, then there's no better team for Michigan outside of playing some, you know, low-life, lowly school. If you're going to be playing a conference game, maybe outside of Illinois, the best that you can do is Rutgers. So if, say for instance, Michigan takes all of his fury and all of his anger out on Rutgers, and it's not going to be like years before, because I think with Greg Schiano at the coach at Rutgers, going back to a team that he coached before, before he went to, uh, what did he coach, the New York Giants or something like that? No, what team did uh, Schiano coach? He coached the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, right? So I think that Rutgers is going to have a better team to where Michigan is not going to be able to run the score up or to name the score to get their feelings on an upward trajectory and get their emotions back and get their confidence back and get their swag back. 
But I think that in the rebuilding year, starting year one with Shiano and Rutgers, that Michigan should still be able to beat them by, by a pretty good margin. And if they do that, who knows? You man, you start winning a, a couple of games, and I'm not saying that Michigan is going to be, you know, in line for winning a championship or winning, you know, getting in a college football playoffs. But damn, at least if they keep winning and they keep winning and they use the Rutgers game as a springboard, that who knows when they play Ohio State. And if that happens, then maybe all of this talk that's happening right now in the past week about Jim Harbaugh is done and Jim Harbaugh and Michigan need to go their separate ways and everything. Maybe that discussion, maybe that turns in the other direction and it all starts this upcoming weekend with a beatdown, which they should, against Rutgers. Because as it stands right now, with the Michigan program, after losing to Michigan State at home, after getting butt-whipped by Indiana, and then just getting embarrassed, emasculated against the Wisconsin Badgers, this this is something that I never thought happened when Wisconsin thoroughly, what, embarrassed, humiliated, punked, emasculated Michigan at home 48-11, to Here's one thing I, I I will say that I never thought I would say about a Jim Harbaugh coach team. Those guys quit. Those guys showed no heart, no pride, no self-dignity. They were getting their asses whooped. And luckily for them, that Paul Crisp, the head coach at Wisconsin, doesn't come from the same school as Billy Tubbs, the basketball coach in Oklahoma, where running up the score is the right thing to do. Luckily, he didn't come from the Bet- Brett Bielema school of running up the score. What the hell are you talking about? What does that mean? And luckily, Wisconsin doesn't have the athletes to really beat down and really embarrass Michigan with double reverses and flea flickers and all that kind of nonsense. So... You know, basically, it was just, uh, we're just going to continue. It was a Rocky Marciano type of performance. Listen, we're just going to stand here. We're going to beat you up. Every time we hit you, it's going to hurt. I don't care if it's in the thighs. I don't care if it's in the arms. I don't care if it's in the chest. I don't care if it's in the jaw. Every time we hit your ass, you're gonna, it's going to hurt. And it's going to make you less able, less willing to stay in the fight. And by the time halftime was over, Michigan had quit. Michigan had given up. Michigan had had given their souls to Wisconsin and say, do what you want. Whipped their ass and didn't even put up a fight. That might have been really, if you think about it. There's been a number of, you know, you can go back to Ohio State and a couple of other games. And even last year where, where Wisconsin just basically took their lunch money, spit in their face and had sex with their mother while the, oh, uh, while the Michigan players just sat there and watched. I don't, I don't know what it is that thoroughly intimidates the Michigan Wolverines when they play Wisconsin. But this is the second time in as many years that Wisconsin has basically just named the score and humiliated and embarrassed them. So with all of that being swirled into the soup, even this game, because last year it was at Camp Randall, but to play like this on your home field at the big house, where there were hardly any fans except for those from Wisconsin, the play like that, that might have been the worst, most embarrassing loss in the Michigan coaching career of Jim Harbaugh. Really. So, again, you know, questions that need to be asked. Does Michigan want to have the best Michigan man football coach combination back by giving him a contract extension? They have to either give him a contract extension or they have to mutually part ways. 
Jim Harbaugh just can't come back as a lame duck coach. Just it wouldn't be good for the program. And the administrators and the athletic directors can't have Jim Harbaugh back as a lame duck coach. And the question even have to ask have to be asked, even if you know, whatever becomes of the season, if they continue to play at this level, does Harbaugh even want to come back to coach for another three to four years in college? I've always felt that Jim Harbaugh was a professional coach. I never thought that this was a job that he was taking at Michigan, that he was going to be the long-term guy. I mean, he's not a, he's not a lifer when it comes to college football coaches. He's not a Nick Saban, even though Saban went to the NFL, dipped his toe in the water, found out it was too cold and had too many sharks, and then it was like, yeah, I think I can go back to college where I can yell and scream at kids and recruit who I want to recruit. Yeah, and I'm a, that's my lane. That's my uh, deal in terms of also being a really, really good football coach, speaking of Nick Saban, but... Jim Harbaugh is not that kind of guy. Jim Bar- Harbaugh is not a David Shaw. Jim Harbaugh is not an Urban Meyer. Jim Harbaugh is not a college football coach. He's always a, he's been a pro coach. He's always wanted to be a pro coach. I was listening to the uh, um, podcast, College Football, the Yahoo Sports podcast, and uh, Pete Thamble made a, a really good point. He was like, when Harbaugh decided that he wanted to get into coaching after his playing career was over, he turned down multiple opportunities to be an offensive coordinator at some really good college football institutions. To be a head coach at San Diego, the USD, University of San Diego. Some non-scholarship school. He wasn't a power five. They weren't going to be winning championships. Kind of interesting to see a coach going from University of San Diego to move anything, anywhere, even with the name, even with the reputation, even with the resume playing-wise, as Jim Harbaugh when he took that job. To turn down offensive coordinator jobs, which you would think would have put you in line to become a head coach in college, and then if you wanted to transfer to the NFL, do it that way. It's a lot harder to do what he did, but he didn't want to be an offensive coordinator. He did not want to be a coordinator. He wanted to be a head coach, and he wanted to start that journey and learn how to be a really good head coach as soon as possible and not spend five or six years calling plays as an offensive coordinator or a quarterback coach or whatever. So that was his journey to ultimately become an NFL head coach. And that's what, he, that's what he's been. I just don't think that he's a guy who, I mean, and not only that, I mean, to be, I don't know as far as his personality is concerned. I think personality is concerned. I think he's better in college than he would be in the pros. Because in the pros, his personality starts to wear on this team after five, six years. I mean, history shows that when he was the coach of the San Francisco 49ers, after four or five years, the organization was tired of his ass. The general manager was tired of his ass. The players basically were tired of his ass. He was tired of those guys. So Jim Harbaugh is, I think, allowed to be more Jim Harbaugh-ish in his personality and his quirks and his uniqueness as a human being. I think it's more tolerated at a university like Michigan where he played and the players that play for him are going to be staying three to four years tops and then they move on and we're speaking about an age range where it's 18 to 22 where you can be a little bit more kooky, you can be a little bit more unique, you can be a little bit more Kyrie Irvinish in your personality and not really, and not really, and not and be able to get away with it. But, you know, this just, I don't know. It'll, it'll, it'll be interesting to see moving forward. Jim Harbaugh and what he does. And if he continues, I mean, everybody's sitting up there talking about he has multiple 
head coaching jobs waiting for him, opportunities waiting for him because of the work that he did in San Francisco. If he continues, if his team, Michigan, continues to play like this, I'm quite sure there'll be inquiries about, hey, you know what? Are you really interested? And let's start the interviewing process. And let's start the getting to know each other process. And let's start the, let's see if this is going to work process with um, an NFL team or two. But when you take a look at the head coaching possibilities in Atlanta and Houston and possibly Jacksonville and possibly Detroit and possibly Chicago, we don't know how that's going to end. When we have a take a look at some of these teams that are going to be needing head coaches, how many of them are going to see what happened at Michigan and then see what happened as far as a working environment is concerned at San Francisco? And if you're Arthur Blank, are you going to say, yeah, I'll pass? If you're one of the McNairs who own the team, are you going to say, yeah, I'll pass? If you're Martha Ford, the head of the uh, the owner of the Detroit Lions, are you going to say, yeah, I'll pass? I'll see. So we'll see. We'll see. Wendell's World in Sports, we will see. We will see Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. And now speaking about what's happening in the uh, college football, let me continue. Another Big Ten team. This might, This team, if you take a look at the preseason projections, this team might be the most disappointing uh, program in college football this year. Speaking about Penn State, at least Michigan has won a game. Penn State is now 0-4 after losing to previously winless, winless Nebraska, 30-23. to I'm not going to talk about they need to fire James Franklin. No, 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 no. I read an AP report where there was an editorial talking about, you know, is now the right time for James Franklin to maybe start becoming more and more interested in the UFC job if and when it comes open. It would be, I think, ridiculous for Penn State to even fathom the idea of letting James Franklin go or not doing everything they can to keep James Franklin. He's a damn good coach. Yeah, some of this rah-rah bullshit kind of rubs me the wrong way. And, you know, I don't know. Who gives a fuck, right? I mean, I'm not paying his salary. I'm not in charge of whether he stays or goes. So who gives a fuck about what he thinks about what I feel about him? Good job, coach. But, you know, I can see where some of his personality is like, you know what, if you ain't winning Rose Bowls and then you ain't competing for championships, uh, you know, your style is a little bit annoying, you as a person. But... I think Franklin is a good coach for the Penn State program. And I I even think moving forward with Penn State, I think those guys need to have a a little heart-to-heart, maybe a little come-to-Jesus reflection type of moment in terms of what are Penn State's expectations? This is a program that was built, the brand was built around Joe Paterno. Penn State before Joe Paterno wasn't the Penn State that we know him now. Joe Paterno built that that, that Penn State program to what it is right now. Joe Paterno, even though the last couple of years were not good and everything that shook out with the Sandusky and everything put a stain on his overall career as a coach and an educator. But what he did at Penn State in terms of building that football program to where they're winning championships and everything. It was it was remarkable. He took that. He did what Bobby Bowden did at Florida State. You know, he took a program that didn't have any success, that was not on the radar as far as college football 
programs that were good or elite or challenging for championships or anything like that. And he made it into a Northeastern power for decades. So all of that comes back to with him not there anymore and the way the program was, was you know, broken down and damaged and injured after this whole Sandusky thing that it's Penn, it, the, 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 Penn State a football program going forward that should be on the same level as some of the elites in college football. Is Penn State an elite football program post Joe Paterno? We, we don't know. We know what Joe Paterno, we know, we know what Penn State was before Joe Paterno came. We know what Penn State was when Joe Paterno was there and rocking and rolling and doing his thing. But Penn State hasn't been that Penn State for a long time. So for those who are sitting there think, you know, thinking that James Franklin has, I think anybody in their right mind wouldn't say that James Franklin has been a disappointment. But there's, there's something missing. Yeah, I mean, are we ever going to take that next step with James Franklin as our head coach? Should we go out and get somebody else who can take us to that next level? Penn State is not that program. That's for the Ohio States of the world. That's for the Texases of the world. That's for the Oklahomas of the world. That should be for the US, USC's of the world. For the Alabamas of the world. That's the type of programs where you can go ahead and say, you know what, I know that we can get someone better or a higher profile of a coach to come coach our program than James Franklin. Penn State is not that type of program. They're not. They're they're for me, they're in the same, and I should add Notre Dame also, in terms of the elite college football programs, but Penn State is, is just that tier above. I mean excuse me, a tier below when it comes to that stuff. And I think that the guy that you got now is good. Penn State is going to be that team that's going to win if you take a look at a decade long period of Penn State football moving forward, they're going to be a football program that's going to win around an average of nine games. Some years they'll win 11. Some years they'll win eight. Maybe anomaly, anomaly they'll win seven. Uh, you know, maybe one or two years in that 10-year span, they'll get really good and, you know, maybe finish number four in the country, number five in the country. I mean, maybe, maybe when all, everything is put together correctly, maybe they could vie for a championship. Maybe they could get themselves into a playoffs during that 10-year stretch with James Franklin as your coach. But for the most part, Ohio, excuse me, uh, Penn State is going to be that program that's going to be playing in some pretty good bowl games. Maybe two or three times in that 10-year stretch that he's going to be, that the Penn State is going to be playing in the Rose Bowl. They're going to finish in the top 10, five, six, seven years. And then they're going to have those years where it's going to be like this one where because of injury, because of the coronavirus, because of players not wanting to play, Micah Parsons and such, they're going to be where they are right now. So I think Penn State next year, they'll be better. They'll finish if the season is going to go back to somewhat being normal, where the uh, where college football is going to be able to play all their games. There's no reason why Penn State can't win next season eight, nine games and get right back in the thick of things. But for them to have the consistency of excellence that, say, an Ohio State has, uh, Penn State is not that type of program. 
And I think James Franklin is a very good coach for that type of program, long-term coach for that type of program. I think James Franklin, I don't know how good he would be if he had to have the responsibilities of, say, a Nick Saban or have the responsibilities of winning, say, like uh, a Lincoln Riley or even a Ryan Day. I don't think that James Franklin is that kind of coach. And Penn State is not that type of program to where even if they do fire James Franklin, they're going to be like, well, let's see if, let's go find out if Nick Saban is available. He's not. Let's go find out if Urban Meyer is available. He's not. Not for Penn State. Texas could make that call to Alabama and say, Nick, are you interested in coming and make it, and, and not have people laugh at them. Make it worth their while. Make it respectable in terms of, yeah, I mean, if you're Texas, you do. You, that's the type of fish that you fish for. You know, you fish for the biggest shark. And right now, Nick Saban is the biggest shark. But Texas football, the history, the program in itself, the amenities, the facilities, yeah, that's the type of program that can go after Nick Saban. Oh, and by the way, the financial backers also to pay him the type of money that it would take if Nick Saban even dreamed of going to another college football program. So if you're Texas, yeah, you uh, let him say thanks, but no thanks. At Penn State, don't even don't even waste your time. Nick Saban with Texas would at least get on the phone phone call and be like, nah, fellas, I'm good. But thanks for offering, though. See ya, click. Penn State, if they call talking about, can we speak to uh, Nick Saban about possibly becoming their coach? Man, they won't even put you through. They won't even put you through the voicemail. His secretary will hang up on you. So... Penn State, I think, is that type of program. They're having a down year. They're having a down year, but uh, they'll be fine. They'll be all right moving forward as a program. Just remember, they're Penn State. They ain't Ohio State. They ain't Alabama. They ain't now Clemson. They're not there. And many people years ago were talking about, well, wait a minute, Wendell. You're speaking about these long-term historical programs like Notre Dame and Alabama and these program for the one championships after championships. Are you going to try to tell me that 10, 15 years ago that you, if someone would have said Clemson would be in the position that they're in now as a football program, that you would say, oh yeah, fuck yeah, which is being one of the elite programs in college football. You wouldn't say something like that. So how can you put that on Penn State, a team with which a, with a much more uh, fruitful and successful history of the football program. You're going to say that Penn State can never reach that level that currently Clemson is right now? Yes, I can say that. <laughs> yes, I can say that. That's what I'm guessing. That's what I'm banking uh, my guesstimation on. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Who would have thought Dabo Sweeney 10, 11 years ago that the name Dabo Sweeney would be in the same level as a as a Nick Saban. But then again, who would have thought Ryan Day would be on that same level in terms of the elites of college football? Who would have thought Lincoln Riley? So, I mean, you know, I, James Franklin, I just think that he's good for uh, Penn State. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your good. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. I'm also very good. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Florida! What in the name of Urban Meyer and Percy Harmon and Tim Tebow is going on here? Florida has introduced themselves to the elites of college football this season. And I talked about a couple of weeks ago, Mac Jones being the Joe Burrow of this college football season. 
in terms of here was a guy in his junior year, he did nothing, he wasn't on anybody's radar going into the season, no one was speaking about him being an NFL potential draft pick and winning the Heisman Trophy, and after what the performances that Mac Jones has had, and all of a sudden he's the leader in some regards to win the Heisman Trophy, and he's come out of nowhere, and Alabama looks unbeatable despite losing uh, one of the top wide receivers, and all oh my goodness gracious, well, hold on for a second. Hold on for a second because Kyle Trask is another guy that said, uh-uh, I'm kind of like the same type of guy. And I think that he's a better NFL prospect than Mac Jones. The question now is going to be as Florida blew out Arkansas, who was playing without their coach because of COVID-related issues, can Florida look like they're in the driver's seat in the uh, SEC East, I mean, Tennessee, <laughs> Woo! Uh, Georgia, disappointing, um, really not anybody else that's going to challenge for that SEC East crown, so in all actuality, it looks like the possibility of the SEC championship game having Alabama playing Florida, it looks like it's a pretty good bet that's going to be happening. Do you give Florida, with that offense, the opportunity, a chance to beat Alabama. It's going to be interesting. And also, what would be even more interesting is, in that championship game, what happens if Florida wins? What does that then do for Alabama? Because we're speaking about a possible ACC championship game between Clemson and North Carolina. We're also speaking about Ohio State being that team from the Midwest to make it to the uh, college football playoffs if they continue to roll. Who knows what's going to be going on in Wisconsin? I mean, I, I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, bring too much out of the beatdown that Wisconsin gave over Michigan and them, and based on that, have them say, you know, have me say, oh man, they look like they could be real challengers for Ohio State if it come, ever comes down to it. I need to pump the brakes a little bit because beating Michigan this year really ain't that big of a fucking deal. And I also want to see how Ohio State is going to play against Indiana, not because I think Indiana poses any kind of any kind of threat. I just want to see Ohio State and I guess it's gonna be as real would you even call Indiana a real first test? Basically if you take a look at the teams that they played, I mean they're not screaming we've arrived either. So this wasn't a case this isn't a case coming up next weekend that uh, Ohio State Indiana is gonna be the same on the same level as Clemson Notre Dame in terms of what type of teams that they have moving forward and their arguments to make the college football playoffs. Same thing with Florida. I mean, Florida, they're not going to be doing anything until they meet Alabama in the SEC championship game, if that's possible. So I don't know. I don't know. It'll be, it'll be interesting. But now we take a look that, again, Florida has introduced themselves. And Texas, A&M, Texas A&M is sitting there talking about, well, hello. Everybody's talking about Florida. Everybody's talking about Alabama. Everybody's talking about Clemson. Everybody's talking about Notre Dame. Everybody's talking about Ohio State. What about us? What about us down here in College Station? How in the world could we not be up there also? Y'all talking about Kyle Trask in, in Florida. We doggone beat Florida. We got ourselves a $75 million coach in Jimbo Fisher. He's been bringing in that doggone talent. Yes, sirree, we should be right up there talking about playing for the national championship. Yeah, we lost to Alabama 41-24, to but who the hell had beaten Alabama? 
That was early in the season, y'all. Y'all gonna go ahead and vote for Trump. You go ahead and vote for Trump because I have an IQ of six. You go ahead and vote for Trump, yeah. But let me tell y'all something right now. We deserve to be in consideration for them doggone playoffs. We deserve that consideration, y'all. Howdy, y'all. How do you like that, huh? Can I be any more stereotypical and ignorant in my stereotyping of people from College Station, Texas? Ah, uh, you know, I gotta have a little laugh. Gotta have a little jokey joke. Gotta get it out of my system. So there you go. But uh, yeah, I mean, Texas A&M, you might have a little bit of an argument, but you got your asses blown out by Alabama. End of discussion. So there you go. So college football, moving on. Whoo, man, we got the NFL football season moving on. And we got Wendell's World of Sports, the podcast. Now we're going to be moving on. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. A lot of things going on in the world of sports. Recording this on a Wednesday, right before the NBA draft. So my next podcast, which I'm going to be putting out in the next 72 hours, is going to be dealing with, again, the NBA, the NBA draft, some free agency moves. Let's see what anything happens with such discussions as James Harden. Is he going to be staying? Is he going to be going to the Nets? What about this talk about Russell Westbrook going to the Washington Wizards, my Washington Wizards for John Wall? Going to get a little bit more into that. I just don't want to get diving too deep into things that are just rumors. So if there's anything a little bit more concrete, I know when Adrian Wojnarowski and folks like that uh, start, uh, you know, focusing and start talking about that a little bit, that you you know raise your eyebrows and you start getting into it a little bit more in terms of this could potentially be happening, but. You know, such insiders and such knowledgeable NBA guys such as Wojnarowski and Zach Lowe and Brian Windhorst and Chris Maddox and those guys really haven't said anything about, yeah, this is going to be pretty much, uh, you know, happening. So 
until that happens, as far as, you know, as Bruce Pritchard likes to say, I don't deal with rumor in innuendo. So, Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us on my TV right now in my humble abode, my townhome here in northwest Las Vegas on a breezy yet somewhat nice 75-degree day in the middle of November. I have on a game between the Dallas Cowboys and the San Francisco 49ers, the 1992 NFC Championship game. That was the game where Steve Young was still trying to uh, you know, vanquish the ghost of Joe Montana hanging over his head saying, you can't win the big one, you can't win the big one. And that was the year that the Cowboys had introduced themselves with Jimmy Johnson at the head coach and Troy Aikman and Emmitt Smith and Michael Irvin and Leon Lett and you know, all those guys, Ken Norton Jr., that um, those guys had finally become the beast of the East and they introduced themselves, or the beast of the NFC, and they uh, introduced themselves in terms of beating the San Francisco 49ers because that year everybody knew that uh, the AFC didn't have a chance, especially after my Houston Oilers at the time because my favorite football player was Warren Moon after they blew a damn 35-3 to lead. I was, I was living in San Diego at the time. I was watching the game, and I left to go back to San Diego to go back to junior college. I was, you know, I was there for two, two years at San Diego Mesa Junior College. Shout out to the uh, late, great head, head basketball coach there, Jay Movahall. But uh, I, had, I was watching the game into the Oilers. They were ahead. My man Warren Moon was doing the thing. So I was like, man, by the time, because it was a cross-country flight from D.C. back to San Diego, I was like, man, by the time I get off the flight, man, I should be, you know, finally finding out what the final score is. 49 to 10, you know, 42 to 17, some shit like that. I got off the flight, went by the uh, went by the uh, bar area and took a look at the TV screen. It was like, wait a minute, Buffalo won? Say what? So everybody knew. Bruce Wright... Uh, uh, Frank Wright with a with a backup quarterback, they won. Jim Kelly didn't play, and they won. Houston was up thirty five to three, and they lost. Fuck. Mentioned before, I was a Washington then Redskin fan, but uh, I, my favorite player by far was um, Warren Moon. So yeah, I was not happy. Uh, <laughs> I was not happy. That day really killed my vibe trying to see what I could do to hook up with Reina Rodriguez. It just just killed the whole thing. But um, that was the game. I said mentioned before as I'm watching this game while doing this podcast. That was the game that afterwards Jimmy Johnson uttered this famous line. How about them Cowboys? Yeah! Yeah! Jerry Jones should be thanking Jimmy Johnson every day. That man is in the Hall of Fame. Because what have the cow what have the cowboy been cowboys have been without Johnson? Nothing. Nothing. So how about them cowboys? So basically that's what I'm watching as I uh I'm done doing this podcast. I like to go back in the uh when I when I do these things, you know, I like to like the podcast before I was watching the nineteen sixty three NBA championship game six between the Boston Celtics and the Los Angeles Lakers. You know, I like to go back in time because everybody talks about, you know, back in the day, back in the day, back in the day. I just like to compare in terms of uh, what was real and what wasn't real. And, 
Everybody like, oh, the NBA sucks. The NBA sucks. You know, back in the 80s, back in the 80s. Oh, you mean back in the 80s when people were complaining that scores like 132 and 127 and, you know, teams like the Denver Nuggets with Alex English and Dan Issel and those guys were running up the score and that, you know, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar didn't play any defense and never crossed half court until the playoffs came. And, you know, they never played any defense until the fourth quarter starts and all this type of nonsense. And that's how bad the NBA is because there's no defense and everybody scores and all that kind of nonsense. Oh, you mean back in the day when you guys were supposedly loving the NBA so much? Oh, yeah, right. Oh, yeah, the great and wonderful Michael Jordan who never did anything wrong. Oh, really? Because I know heading into his seventh year in the league, I was uh, right there, present. I listened to all the talking heads. I was out there in KMBR and listening to Bob Fitzgerald and Gary Rashdick and, and the King, Pete Franklin, you know, that type of sports talk radio where, you know, Michael Jordan was nothing more than a ball-hogging, hot-dogging showboat who couldn't win a championship because he was more into scoring and winning championships, uh, scoring championships than he was in the winning NBA championships. I mean, the great Peter uh, Franklin, the great Pete Franklin, Never said those type of things, but what I'm saying is the advent of sports talk radio was there present, and you could catch multitudes of talking heads on the air nationally, locally, whatever, and they were saying this type of bullshit, and they were saying this type of nonsense, and they were saying this type of stuff too, where now in the year 2020, I thought of anybody criticizing Michael Jordan back in the day would have been looked for a certain generation would have an inquisitive look because it's like, well, damn, didn't Michael Jordan used to walk on water and save cancer and bring peace to the Middle East and end race relations and, and, and have find a cure for AIDS and cancer? Didn't he do all that while scoring 200 points a game the Chicago Bulls never losing? Wasn't Michael Jordan just deified as the greatest thing who ever walked the face of the earth as far as a basketball player is concerned as soon as he hit the game-winning shot in the 1982 NCAA Finals against Georgetown? I mean, he actually was criticized. He was actually doubted. There was actually people out there talking about, yeah, you know, all all frosting and no cake. Yes, sirree. So I like to always go back and take a look at some of these games and listen to what these folks are saying and do those type of things so I can add a little bit more perspective because that helps me define it helps me shape my thoughts and opinions when discussing about what's going on today. If you don't know your past, you'll never be successful in your future. So I like to be somewhat relevant in terms of what the talking, what was being said back in those days so I can bring it back and kind of put it into context so I can have a bigger, better, more sophisticated, more insightful commentary on what's going on today in the world of sports so that's one of the reasons why so when people ask me man why are you always talking about you watching you know 1935 fucking baseball games when you're doing a podcast about tennis and basketball what the fuck's up with that it's because of that reason the more knowledgeable you are the more intelligent you are the better your thoughts and your opinions will be because it'll be based on it'll be based on evidence and intelligence isn't that what the world needs needs more of especially now, intelligence. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Okay, week 10 of the NFL. Of course, the game of the week, maybe one of the games of the year, Arizona over Buffalo, 32-30. DeAndre Hopkins made an improbable 43-yard touchdown catch over three Buffalo defenders with two seconds remaining for the win for the Cardinals. Now, how the winning score went down, Arizona Cardinals quarterback Kyler Murray 
rolled out to his left as the seconds ticked off the clock and Oliver was charging at him full speed ready to uh, body check him over to Prescott he flung the ball towards the end zone, end zone where Hopkins was waiting with three Buffalo defenders draped all around him he leaped, they leaped Hopkins leaped higher came down with the ball got the touchdown, pandemonium even with the small crowd that was watching the game in Arizona so it's going to go down in Arizona sports lore as the Hale Murray. Everybody's talking about what was better, the catch or the throw? Who gives a fuck? Who's better looking in 1992, Selma or Halley? Who gives a damn? <laughs> both are equally impressive. But you're going to try to tell me which one was better? They were both awesome. Awesome. So when you're speaking about the catch and the throw. So for the game, Murray threw for 245 yards, one touchdown, one interception. Hopkins had seven catches for 127 yards. As I mentioned before, one of the more entertaining games of the season. Hey, Buffalo, I know going into the bye week is going to sting. They can go either one or two ways because they're still in first place in the AFC East. So yeah, it sucks. Yeah, it's horrible. Yeah, it would have been nice to uh, get that victory. But in that game, they uh, they had multiple opportunities to put the game away. They were up 23-9 to when Josh Allen hit Cole Beasley, who had some pretty spectacular catches himself. Uh they went ahead 23-9 when Beasley had a 22-yard touchdown pass after Kenyon Drake lost the ball, bobbled right into the hands of a Buffalo defender. But then Arizona, I mean, you know, again, second-year quarterback in Kyler Murray, nine-play, 85-yard drive that ended with a uh, one-yard touchdown run by Kyler to make the score 23-17. And Zane Gonzalez hit a 45-yard field goal to make it 23-19. Murray ran for 15 yards to make the score 26-23, then, hey, you know what? Josh Allen looks like he might be motoring back to the type of player he was the first four weeks of the uh, regular season through a 21-yard touchdown pass to to Stephon Diggs, but 34 seconds left. That would have looked like, because we're speaking about now making the score 30-26, to so they needed a touchdown. Not a 50-something-yard field goal, but a touchdown to win the football game. So it looked like, you know what? 30 to 26, 34 seconds left. Arizona, I don't, did they have all their, their time? I know they didn't, didn't have all of their timeouts. So it looked like they were in pretty good shape for the win. But then the Hale-Murray play happened and Arizona Cardinals, they're dancing in the streets. They're dancing on the roads of Scottsdale. They're dancing on the roads of Avondale. They're dancing in the roads of Mesa. They're dancing in the roads of Glendale. They're dancing in the roads of Sedona, they're dancing in the roads of Flagstaff, they're dancing all over the state of Arizona, so there you go. So the first thing I really thought about, though, when Hopkins made the catch, what went through your mind? Was it the same thing that went through my mind? First of all, the first thing that went through my mind was, holy shit, he caught it. But then the second thing, very quickly, that went into my mind was, if I'm former Houston Texans coach Bill O'Brien, I hope that he's not anywhere near the Houstonian ever area. And if, say for instance, he's not in the Houstonian ever uh, area, coach, don't ever go back there. Ever! After something like that. Houstonians, after that catch, without question, they should think of O'Brien in the same manner as the Boston Red Sox view Bill Buckner after the uh, 1986 ground ball how long it took for those guys to uh, get over that uh, misstep. They should think of Bill O'Brien the same way that the Boston Red Sox think of John McNamara 
taking out or keeping Pedro Martinez in in Game 7 of the ALCS against the New York Yankees. The Houstonians, the Houston Texans, the fans, the season ticket holders of that team, they should feel the same way about Bill O'Brien as the Chicago Cubs viewed Steve Bartman or the way that the Edmonton Oilers fans viewed Peter Pocklington after 1988 when he traded away Wayne Gretzky. Bill, don't ever fucking come back here. <laughs> if, I'm, if I'm a Houston Texans fan and I'm watching that game, here's my reaction on the last play of the game. Oh, oh, wow. Oh, he's going to, is he going to throw it into the, oh my God, he caught it, who caught that? Fuck you, O'Brien. Fuck you, you stupid son of a bitch. You motherfucking dumbass motherfucker. What the fuck are you doing trading Hopkins for a fucking second round pick? For a fucking second round pick and all used up, washed up running back? Are you fucking kidding me? We scored seven points against the goddamn Cleveland Browns? Fuck. You fucking suck, O'Brien. Don't let me see your ass in the street. Don't let me see your ass in the fucking street, (laughs) O'Brien. That that would be my reaction. <laughs> that would be my reaction if I'm a Houston Texans fan after de- watching DeAndre Hopkins catch that ball from Tyler Murray. You motherfucker! A goddamn second round fucking pick because you didn't want to trade them because you didn't want to pay that motherfucker. Fuck you, O'Brien. Fuck you. Fuck you. <laughs> 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 and don't tell me y'all wouldn't have done the same thing if someone if Bill O'Brien was on your team and he did some stupid shit like that. So <laughs> the Cardinals now have a six and three record. They're in a three way tie for first place in the NFC West with the uh, Seattle Seahawks defeating, shall I say, losers of three or four games. Seattle Seahawks and the surging Los Angeles Rams and. Finally, a Thursday night game that we can really sink our teeth into. The last Thursday night game between Tennessee and um, Indianapolis was really good. But now we got, you know, Seattle and the Cardinals going to be playing in Seattle for first place in the the, uh, NFC West. So that's going to be cool. If the Cardinals, and I mentioned before about, hey, new guy into the MVP race. Hey, man, let me tell you something. If the Cardinals win the NFC West... Kyler Murray is going to be a strong candidate, should be a strong candidate to win the MVP. And I know, I know, man, for the longest time, I was talking about Russell Wilson, Russell Wilson, Russell Wilson, and Russell Wilson isn't out of the conversation just yet. But I think Kyler Murray has overtaken him. And again, you have Patrick Mahomes sitting out here, you know, in Kansas City talking about 21 touchdowns, one interception. We only lost one game. Excuse me. But mentioned before, new stories. Give me something fresh. Give me something that I can be interested in. Kyler Murray is a much more interesting story right now than Patrick Mahomes. And now with this play, the flavor of the flavor of the week to be in the flavor of your ear is now Kyler Murray. And look, Arizona has a legit chance of winning this division. Despite Cliff Kingsbury calling plays, if all of the experts who know about play calling is correct. Dan Olasky was just like, what the fuck? When it came to speaking about Cliff Kingsbury and his play calling. But the Cardinals still have a legitimate chance of winning the uh, NFC division. They have the best point differential in the division. They have the best road record 
in a head-to-head victory over Seattle already. Of course, the rematch is coming up on Thursday night. They've won four of the last five games. They've only lost to Miami, and we know how well Miami is doing. They're just as streaky and hot as the Arizona Cardinals after their victory over the Los Angeles Chargers. Oh, Anthony Lynn. <sighs> Damn. So they still have two games left against the NFC East team. So you're talking about back-to-back games December 13th and 20th against the New York Giants and Philadelphia Eagles. Who, who knows what type of shape they're going to be in and who knows how much momentum Seattle will have if they continue to roll. I mean, if they can get that win on the road Thursday night against Seattle, I mean, I don't know, man. Who's going to be stopping them in terms of them winning a title? They'll lose more games. I'm not saying that they're Kansas City. I'm not saying that they're elite. I'm not even saying that they're real Super Bowl winning material. But the way those guys are playing now and the way how fickle momentum is, they might not be the best team in the NFC, but damn, are you going to be wanting to face Kyler Murray in the playoffs? Full go, full bore, full momentum, full confidence? Are you going to want to be facing uh, that team? The offensive balance, the team leads the NFL in total yards and the league in rushing yards. When you've got Kenyon Drake, Chase Edmond, and then Murray, they're all among the most productive players in the league as far as running the ball. The three combined for 217 yards against the Bills rushing. Drake had 100, Murray had 61 and two TDs, Edmond had 56 yards. So the balance is there. They got themselves a top flight elite number one receiver in DeAndre Hopkins. Now, the defense injuries are going to be the main obstacle for Arizona if they want to continue to do what they're doing and be and be real threats to the New Orleans Saints, depending upon how much Drew Brees recovers. Um, if you're speaking about Tampa Bay, if they continue to roll. But, you know, defense might be the only bugaboo if they're going to be facing those type of teams in a championship type of, uh, of uh, game. But you know, starting defensive lineman Corey Peters, he suffered a knee injury. In the first half against the Bills, he was carted off the field. He ain't coming back anytime soon. Chandler Jones, who's their best pass rusher, he's been out with an injury for a while. So it's going to be incumbent upon the offense, and in particular, Callum Murray, to keep it going. And when I speak about Murray for discussion and consideration for the MVP, hey, man, he's completed 68% of his passes as Drew Breesish. Yeah, I know, I know a lot of those are screen passes and short passes, but still 68%. It's still 68%. He's passed for over 2,100 yards. He has 16 touchdowns, seven interceptions. His passer rating sits almost at 199.3. He's averaging 7.63 yards per carry. Prior to the Bills game, he had 543 yards rushing more than any other quarterback, and it's just behind seven running backs. So we're speaking about that dual threat there. He also has, a, he also has uh, eight rushing touchdowns which is tied for third in the league. So you 16 touchdowns, eight rushing touchdowns, 16 touchdown passes through the air, eight rushing touchdowns. I mean, that's 24 touchdowns that Kevin Murray is is, uh, responsible for. He came into the week in week 10, came in ranked just 13th in adjusted net yards per attempt and 16th in pro football focused passing yards and grades and everything. So he's not flawless. He's not what Patrick Mahomes was when he won the MVP. He's not Lamar Jackson and how flawless he was when he won the MVP, just based on a stats per stats per stats line. But I tell you one thing, moving into the second year of him being the quarterback, I'll say it already. He's already ahead 
in his second year, and I think that him and Lamar are the same age, uh, or at least Lamar, I don't know if he's still 22, but let's put it this way, they're around, they're, they're basically the same age. So in his second year, Kyler Murray is already ahead of what people hope Lamar Jackson would be as far as a complete quarterback going into a third year. Lamar Jackson has made great strides in terms of him being a pocket passer and the fact that, you know, Baltimore really doesn't have any type of receivers, wide receivers, <coughs> the, the caliber of Kyler Murray, when you see all of the passes that's going to Mark Andrews to, to tight end for the Ravens, that's who Lamar Jackson relies on first, second, third, and fourth. Well, you know, Mark Andrews is not the type of uh, wide receiver that DeAndre Hopkins have. And, oh, you also have... Larry Fitzgerald on that team. That makes a big of a difference too. So Kyler Murray might have more options, <clears throat> which could explain why his quote-unquote pocket presence or him being a pocket quarterback, if you take a look at some of the stats and everything, might look a little bit more polished, might look a little bit more advanced than, say, Lamar Jackson. Lamar has made some strides, but I think the more optimistic, maybe you could say unrealistic people, after the season that Lamar Jackson had, would say, okay, now after winning that MVP award and doing all that he had been doing with the uh, rushing and everything, that now in the offseason, and coming back for his third year, the the improvement that Jackson would make as a quarterback would be more you know, pocket-passing centric. Well, he's still a work in progress. And Kyler Murray, I think, in that regard, is much better uh, doing that, which makes him as a combo, combo quarterback, a dual threat quarterback, I think that makes him as of right now a much bigger threat, a much bigger weapon than say Lamar Jackson, even though I think Lamar Jackson is still, you know, a very, I mean, poses a very serious threat for teams when they play. So you take a look at Kyler Murray for the MVP. You put him in the discussion as Patrick Mahomes. And I mentioned before, Patrick Mahomes is sitting up there talking about with his fiance and his and his, um, and his girl's belly getting big with their uh, child in it. He's sitting up there going, 21 touchdowns, one interception. Hello. Patrick Mahomes, Russell, West, uh, Russell Wilson. If I say Russell Westbrook one more fucking time, Russell Wilson, still MVP caliber. Uh, you know, Josh Allen, you got to put him back there. I would think Green Bay, I think Aaron Rodgers is going to garner some real discussion. Ben Roethlisberger, I mean, how could you not? Quarterback of an 0-9, 9-0 Pittsburgh Steelers team. Outside of the box, players like Alvin Kamara, Cleveland defensive end Miles Garrett. So, I mean, Derrick Henry still has a chance to get back into the discussion. So, all of those things, all of those players are in the mix, are in the soup, are in the recipe to make this MVP cake in terms of uh, Kyler Murray. But I tell you, we go for stories. We go for fresh stories. And Mahomes has already run a MVP. Miles Garrett is the defensive end. So how do you equate his statistics when you're speaking about the numbers that a quarterback can put up? Alvin Kamara, he's all-purpose. So where do we eventually go with him in terms of what's his more valuable stat that we can bring, that he can bring to the table when discussing his MVP nom nomination? Derrick Henry, 
His team is not even in the playoffs right now. And a team that went to the AFC Championship. So we got to discuss that. So Josh Allen, he's had some up and down games. But after you know the game he had against Seattle, and after the game, even in the losing cause, the game that he had against the Cardinals, that puts him back into the serious MVP consideration. A big, tall, strapping young guy from Wyoming. You know, his story is very compelling and hasn't been told. So those are all the things that are going to be baked into this cake. But right there, in terms of the consideration, week 10, the front runner, if it ain't Mahomes, it's going to be Kyler Murray. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Konnichiwa. Salam. Shalom. Wassalam alaikum. Que pasa? Bonjour. Bonsoir. Mi amigos. What is going on? Boy, I'm watching this game between Dallas and San Francisco. I'm here to tell you guys who don't know, Steve Young was really good. No wonder that guy made the Hall of Fame. <laughs> Jeez. The talent that's on the field out here. Damn, man. Just both on offense and defense. Yeah, Jimmy Johnson could uh, pick some players, man. That man is, uh, that man was something else. Love myself some Jimmy Johnson um, as a coach. You know, you take a look. As a leader, who would you like, if you had to have someone leading you, who would you like to have? I've always said guys like uh, Jimmy Johnson, Bill Belichick, and Greg Popovich have always been at the top of the list. Now, I I love me some Mike Tomlin. I love me some uh, Doc Rivers. I love me some Tony Dungy. I I would really love to play for a guy like Mike Vrabel. That would be pretty good. Uh, you know, Hall of Fame guys, you know, Joe Gibbs. I don't know if I could, you know, tolerate. I, I've always, like, I, I could never, I would never tolerate someone like a um, Tom Izzo. When I played basketball, it was like, look, man, you can yell at me. You can scream at me. You can do all that kind of stuff. But if that's all you're doing, then I'm just going to not listen to you anymore and I'm just going to say fuck you and I'm just going to go into a shell and I'm I'm not mentally strong enough or mature enough to really, you know, take what you're saying, the yelling and the criticism. I couldn't separate after a while. I mean, you know, you go off on me a couple of times, that's fine. But after a while, you know, I couldn't separate the, you know, don't listen to how he's saying it, just listen to what he says. No, I'm going to be, I'm not, I wasn't strong enough mentally I wasn't mature enough to kind of not pay attention to that as far as what he was saying, how he was saying it. So, you know, if you're, if, you know, Tom Izzo, and look, the more you know about the man, the more you knew that he really cared about his players and such. And, you know, look, as long as you do that, as long as you show me that you care 
And as long as you don't get personal, as long as you don't, you know, yell, at, you know, start, you know, throwing insults at, about my mom and dad. How the fuck did your parents raise such a fucking pussy-ass bitch like you? Or your parents like you, Wallace, you pussy-ass motherfucker? All right, now we've got some problems. Now we've got some problems. Your mom should have aborted you. What a mistake she had having you. Okay, now now we've got some problems. Now, now, now I'm upset. And now I'm going to throw a chair at you. And now I'm going to run after you. And now I'm going to try to Latrell Sprewell, PJ Carlissimo you. That's basically what I'm going to do. I mean, you can, yeah, but, but, you know. How do we get on this? Basically, what I'm saying is that Johnson, Popovich, Belichick, those guys, those guys, you know, aren't the fuzziest, aren't the warmest, and all those type of things. But at least with Johnson and um, Popovich and those guys, charisma, and they know that they care. So that's why I would love to play for a guy like Jimmy Johnson because he could push me, push me, push me, push me, and I would know that I would get the best out of myself because I know through all that yelling, screaming, pushing that he would actually care. So that's why through this whole roundabout rigmarole, um, I would love to play for a guy back in my 20s and back in my playing days. I would love to play for a coach like uh, Jimmy Johnson. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Basketball coach. I've never played football. Um, troubling times in Seattle. What's going on with the Seattle Seahawks? Losing to the Los Angeles Rams, 23-16. First time this season they scored less than 27 points. Came into the game averaging almost 35. Seahawks have lost now three of their last four games after starting the season 5-0. and And look, the last three losses were to Arizona, 37-34 in overtime. A couple of mistakes by Russell, uh, Russell Wilson, especially in overtime, gave the Cardinals the opportunity to win the game. Buffalo going across country, playing the Bills, losing 44-34. Shit like that happens to everybody. And then losing to the Rams on the road, 23-16. I'm, I'm not panicking just yet. I think we're starting to get a better idea of what Seattle is, both offensively and defensively. I think from a personnel standpoint for Seattle, offensively and defensively, we're starting to realize what they are. So I think with a guy like Pete Carroll, a coach like Pete Carroll, and uh, you know, the defense, head by defensive coordinator Ken Norton Jr., but I'm quite sure with Carroll being a defensive, uh, defensive guy, that's how he made his bones, um, that he's really overseeing what's going on with the defense. I, I, I don't think that all of a sudden... Seattle is going to be turning back into the Legion of Boom anytime soon, and anywhere close. But this kind of this can't get any worse. And for the most part, look, the Rams did what they did: ten of sixteen on third and fourth down combined, held the ball for thirty-three minutes. So while the score might not have indicated, or them scoring twenty-three points might not have indicated how dominant they were on offense, you take a look at the numbers, deviled in the details, they weren't dominant. But they were they were thorough in their advantage that they have when it came to the Rams' offense going against the Seahawks' defense. Jalen Ramsey, best cornerback in the game, took out DK Metcalf when he was matched up with him. Thirty routes they were matched up. Jalen Ramsey and uh, DK Metcalf on Sunday. Thirty routes. Metcalf was targeted four times. He caught two passes for 28 yards total. And many people are up here talking about for a period of time that DJ, DK Metcalf might be the best wide receiver in the game. And we saw what Jalen Ramsey did to him. 
far as any individual thing, I know Russell Wilson doesn't give a really give two shits about it, but his lead in the MVP race is now gone. And I'm quite sure Russell is sitting up there with Sierra going, I cannot believe it. Fuck the fact that we're six and three. I'm not in the MVP race. So I'm quite sure that I'm being facetious. But look, he threw two interceptions for the second time in as many weeks. Something that he hasn't done since his rookie year in 2012. And he fumbled the ball once. His offensive offensive line surrendered season a season high six sacks. And I also think that we have to talk about that. The fact that, you know, of all the things that Russell Wilson has masked in terms of the inequities of the Seattle football team. It's been that he's played behind a anywhere between slightly below average to below average to terrible offensive line through a lot of his prime. That's one of the reasons why years ago the Seahawks made a trade, I think gave up a first round pick to uh, bring in Dwayne Brown at the time of the Houston Texans before Bill O'Brien was the GM. But uh, they have always been trying to do some things to beef up and to improve their offensive line. And for the most part, it's gotten better, but they regressed against the uh, L.A. Rams. Now, look, when you're going up against Aaron Donald, uh, those things are going to happen. You're going to give up sacks. But not a good day for the offensive line. And speaking of Russell Wilson, back to him, you know, not being the leader in the MVP race anymore. And the three defeats, he's committed 10 turnovers. Mm, not good. Not good. And let's, let's be clear here. Again, I mentioned before about with these games moving on, we're 10 weeks into the season. Seattle has played nine games. There are no more surprises. There are no more rocks to be uncovered to see what they can do to improve their defense or to magically turn around their defense or to improve their offensive line or to uh, improve their running game to the point where if Russell Wilson doesn't play at an MVP level, the Seahawks are going to lose the first game that they play in the playoffs. I'm, I'm not talking about Russell Wilson being good. I'm not talking about Russell Wilson being a game manager. Once the playoffs start, because look, you take a look at the schedule. They're still 6-3. and three. They got some games where it's going to be like they're going to be able to win. I'm not going to sit here and talk about Seattle's going to miss the playoff or, or any that, that type of stupidity. They play a couple of teams from the NFC East. They play Philadelphia, they play the Giants, they play the Jets, they play Washington. So, all of this, you know, negativity that I might be spewing about the Seattle Seahawks right now, I'm not going to be surprised when they finish 11-5 or 10-6. Is that going to be good enough that you win the NFC West and get themselves home field advantage for a game? I don't know. But, despite all of this, when they do get into the playoffs, and they are going to have to play against... They're going to be going to the Super Bowl. They're going to either have to go through an Aaron Rodgers or a Drew Brees or a Tom Brady. And if they make it to the Super Bowl, they're going to have to go through the offense led by a Patrick Mahomes or a Ben Roethlisberger or a running game led by a, a Derrick Henry or the improvement of the Las Vegas Raiders. Whoever, whoever, who knows who's going to be, you know, in the Super Bowl. Even we have the Super Bowl on the date that many people are talking about. Who knows? That's down the line right now but basically Russell Wilson had to play at an MVP level for those guys to win him and Kyler Murray are the most important offensive player players in the league for the responsibilities that they have for their team to win that whole offense for Arizona is built around Kyler Murray if Kyler Murray goes down God forbid the Arizona Cardinals are done because they don't have anybody else 
who can play that style of offense. They don't have a quarterback who can run that style of offense. Forget just as good as Kyler Murray even coming close. They don't have anybody like that. The same thing with Seattle. God forbid if something happens to Russell Wilson, who's going to come in to duplicate, to replicate what Russell Wilson is doing? You take a look at that defense that's giving up 30-something points a game. You're taking a look at the responsibilities that Russell Wilson has. He's got to be MVP-ish. He's got to be elite week after week after week. Every quarterback is going to have a bad game. Shit, the leader for the MVP race right now, Kyler Murray, what, you think he's had nine games of being fantastic, of, um, you know, of no mistakes, of, of being perfect? We saw how terrible Tom Brady was a couple of weeks ago against um, the um, New Orleans Saints. We've seen Aaron Rodgers, how bad he's been on a couple of games this season. Everybody's going to have bad games. Everybody's going to go through two or three stretches, uh, two or three games in a season where they're going to be awful. Russell Wilson, this is just his time. But because of the amount of responsibilities that he has, the chances of him winning a football game, if he throws two interceptions and fumbles the ball once, his chances of winning the game are minuscule because the defense is not doesn't have the talent, doesn't have the scheme, or at least has not shown this season that they can win a football game ugly. They've shown that they can win shootouts because of their offense, but they're not winning a game 14-13. They're not winning a game 21-17. They're not winning a game 13-10. They just ain't going to do it. So while Tampa Bay has a defense that could overcome mediocrity from... Tom Brady, while the New Orleans Saints have a defense that could overcome a mediocre game from Drew Brees, Seattle doesn't have that luxury. The defense for the Rams, they have a defense to where they can win a low-scoring, ugly type of football game. The Seattle Seahawks don't. And you look, you know, Carlos Dunlap coming in. This is his second game. Whoop-de-doo-da, whoop-de-da. He'll improve it a little bit. Jamal Adams still trying to get some of the rust off after coming back from a groin injury. Grook, grook, groin, grook, grook, groin injury. He'll get better. But this team on defense is not going to, I don't care, it, scheme, whatever. I don't care what it is. It ain't going to be happening in terms of them lessening the load for Russell Wilson to be great to win a Super Bowl. The defense, it is what it is. Way below average to win a Super Bowl if Russell Wilson ain't going to be great. Against the Rams on Sunday, they gave up. This was, for them, a pretty good game. They gave up only 389 yards. But then again, Rams converting 10 of 16, third and fourth downs. The Rams averaging five and a half yards per play. Controlling the ball for over 33 minutes. Going into the game against the Rams on Sunday, Seattle's defense was giving up an average of 455 yards. That's ranked last in the league. They're giving up 30 points per game for the first time, or uh, for the first nine weeks, and for uh, you know that that that's that's inexcusable. The last three quarterbacks they played of MVP caliber, Kyler Murray, he went 34 or 48 for 360 yards, three touchdowns. The team Arizona scored 37 points. Josh Allen went 31 of 38, 418 yards, three touchdowns. The Buffalo Bills scored 44 points. Not all of that was on offense. There was a couple of returns uh, on defense um, for Buffalo, but you get my point. 
Josh Allen, 31 of 38, 418 yards after coming off a couple of mediocre performances. Jared Goff, 37 passes. He completed 27 of them for 302 yards. And the Rams scored 23 points, controlled the ball. The game wasn't as close as the score indicated. And again, this is not all doom and gloom. Arizona, they play on Thursday. Then they've got Philadelphia on the road. They play at home against the Giants and the Jets. Then they go on the road to play the Washington and Nepskins. They play the Rams at home. And then they finish off on the road at San Francisco. Don't see how it's going to be anything less than 10-6 and six as far as the record is concerned, which is going to qualify them in the playoffs. And when you get into the playoffs, hey man, it's all about momentum. It's all about who's injured, who's not injured, who's playing the best football, who has the best momentum. So it's still far too far to be sitting there and making any type of concrete uh, analysis in terms of how these games are going to be going, how these teams are going to be going, which way they're going to be going here on November 18th, 2020. Russell Wilson is going to bounce back with some big games. You don't think he's going to have a good game against the Jets? You don't think he's going to have the, a, a, a great game against the Yanepskins? You don't think he's going to have a really good game against the Giants? You don't think maybe at the end of the season when San Francisco's like, oh man, fuck this, that he's not going to be able to have a good game then? It's going to be fine. I think Russell Wilson is going to turn things around. Is it going to be enough to win the MVP? Well, he's not in first place anymore. But how much, how much longer can Kyler Murray play at this level? There's going to be a couple of more games where Kyler Murray is not going to be sensational. How is that going to sway the decision, sway the discussion about who's going to be the true MVP? We'll see. We will see. I'm not going to sing. Shut up. We will see. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. So who's the best team in the NFC this week, huh? Because we've gone through Tampa Bay. We've gone through New Orleans. We've gone through the Rams. We've gone through the Packers. We've gone through Seattle. I mean, so who is it this time? Who are we, who are we talking about? Because as of right now, if you want to go by the rankings in terms of who's the team that has the uh, home field advantage throughout the NFC playoffs is the Green Bay Packers. The number two seed is the New Orleans Saints. Number three seed, Arizona Cardinals. Number four seed, Philadelphia, 70, uh, Philadelphia 76ers, along with Julia Serving and Moses Malone and Andrew Tony. Woo! Those guys were great. But in football, the number four seed this week is the Philadelphia Eagles. No need to talk about them. The number five seed, only one game out of the NFC West or South, is the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And as I mentioned before, Los Angeles, the Rams, and Seattle are tied for first place for the uh, in the NFC West. So, as of the rankings, Green Bay's first, New Orleans second, Arizona third, Philadelphia fourth, Tampa Bay fifth, the Rams sixth, and the Seattle Seahawks seventh. And you got teams like the Chicago Bears and the Minnesota Vikings, and only because they're in the worst division of football, the New York Giants still in a position to where if any of those teams falter, slide, or whatever, that they could take their place in terms of making the playoffs. So, who do you got, man? Tell me. Let me know. Green Bay had the number one seed. They hold the tiebreaker over the Saints. They did lose to the Buccaneers. Are you confident with those guys? I'm not. They still haven't shown me that they can be successful against a really physical football team. New Orleans had the number two seed. They're one game ahead of Tampa Bay. And hold the tiebreaker against them. They won against the Buccaneers in the first week of the season. Then a couple of weeks ago, they put the uh, they laid the smackdown on them in Tampa. 
But are they going to even be the number two seed after the injury with Drew Brees? So that'll be interesting. The LA Rams, they might have the most complete team in the conference as you speak about offense and defense. The play calling with Sean McVay is awesome. The chemistry between Sean McVay calling the plays and the execution of Jared Goff at the quarterback being the ultimate game manager in this this situation is working very well. And oh yeah, they also got two prime defensive players in the conference when you're speaking about the best defensive player in the NFL in the last, I don't know, five, ten years in Aaron Donald and one of the better, if not elite, cornerbacks in the league in Jalen Ramsey. So they might be the team. But then again, they're not an explosive. I mean, I love the way Sean McVay called the plays. You know, nice Cooper Cup and those guys. The running game is, is solid. But are they going to be able to survive a shootout with that type of offense which is so methodical if they get down are you going to be able to have a lot of confidence full confidence in turning the game over to Jared Goff to try to get them back into the uh, back into the game he's more Jimmy G of last year than he is Aaron Rodgers or Patrick Mahomes of this year so we'll see we'll see so we have games of interest in the conference this week. We've got Green Bay and Indianapolis. That'll be pretty good. A good proving point game because you're speaking about Indianapolis with the type of defense that they have, the type of physicality that, that they'll play. This will be a good test for the Green Bay Packers to see if they can withstand that type of physical uh, physical game. Monday night, you have the Rams at Tampa. Again, that'll go a long way once again. Let's see if the Buccaneers are truly over that beatdown that they re- that they received by the New Orleans Saints. This will be without question the third hardest game that they'll play. This will be the fourth. I'll say their fourth proving ground game that they'll play this season. Like what type of team are they? Are they for real as far as being Super Bowl contenders? They failed against the Saints in Week One. They rebounded and did very well against the Green Bay Packers. Then they failed again against the Saints, and now they're going to get their fourth opportunity to show what type of team they are as far as their legitimacy of winning championships as they play at home against the Los Angeles Rams. So we'll go from there. I don't know, not making any predictions. Who cares? Who's the best right now? It's all about who has the momentum, who's going to be strong, who is going to be, you know, health-wise, who's going to be at their best when the playoff comes. But uh, still, rocky ride, bumpy ride for a lot of teams interesting ride for all of them. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. A lot of things going on in the world of sports. A lot of things going on in the world. A lot of things happening in your community. A lot of things happening around the world. A lot of things happening right there in your bedroom. A lot of things happening in your schoolyard. A lot of things happening. A lot of things happening. A lot of things happening. Mm. 
man, as I'm recording this, getting on to be about two o'clock, watching the, um, again, watching the 1992 NFC Championship game between the Dallas Cowboys and the San Francisco 49ers. One thing I will say, because you have Terry Bradshaw here doing the halftime show, he's out there on the field. He's out there at the stadium. You have Greg Gumbold. You have Pat O'Brien. You have Leslie Visser. I'll tell you one thing. For all of these guys, you had Madden, Summerall. Now, Summerall's no longer with us. I haven't seen Madden in a while since he uh, said goodbye to doing the games. For, I guess he was with Al Michaels back on NBC. He been, hasn't been seen for years on a regular basis. But I will say, man, for this game being almost 30 years old, we're speaking about 28 years you know, the Terry Bradshaw and those guys, as far as 30 years, they don't look that much different. I mean, yeah, they're older looking, of course. You know, they weigh a lot more and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, those guys still look pretty good. Those guys still look recognizable very well for their age. So those guys have aged very well. So maybe I'm doing the right thing. Maybe broadcasting is the right thing, you know, to do in terms of uh, slowing down the aging process. Because uh, Bradshaw, you know, he looked pretty good. Looks pretty good now compared to uh, what I'm taking a look at in 1992. So same with Leslie Visser. She's still looking good compared to, you know, 1992. So, you know, I am, you know, at my age, I mean, I'm always, you know, but me being an unrestricted free agent as far as, you no know, no kids, not married or anything like that. I've always, like, I don't know, maybe this is just my age talking, but, uh, you know, I've, I've always found women around the ages of, like, you know, at the last couple of years, I mean, the ages of around, you know, 42 to 47. I think that's the sweet spot. That's the prime spot for women as far as attractiveness is concerned. And I'll even, you know, I mean, maybe, maybe I'll say 36, 36 to 47. 36 is where you really start hitting your prime as far as really being attractive, at least to me, at least to me. That 36 to 47 range, that's where it looks like, you know, you, you start getting a little bit, you know, you start getting a little bit more experience. You know, life, you just start enveloping life a little bit more. So you start showing signs of, of living, of growing. You know, I mean, you, you gain a little bit more weight. You fill out a little bit more. You just look better. Just somehow when you reach that certain age group, you just look better, at least to me, than you do when you're 22 and 28 and 29 and such. Now, if I was between those ages, I would most definitely say that, yeah, the best looking women are 22 to 29. But at my age group, where I'm at right now, I just think that women are at their most attractive, most attractive. If you're attractive, you're going to be attractive. I don't give a damn. If you're 80 years old and you're attractive when you're 20, as long as you take care of yourself, you're still going to be attractive for your age group, what I mean, though. But uh, for me, as of right now, being a 51-year-old male, I think right now women between the ages of like 41 and 48 are just the most gorgeous group of women walk on the face of the earth. And, you know, getting back up to 50 and 51 and 55, I mean, you still keep that gorgeousness. But I think the sweet spot, as of right now, and of course in 10 years I'll be talking about, yeah, women who are 55 are so much better looking than they are when they're 47. It's not even funny. But I'm talking about as of right now for me, being the age that I am right now, 42 to 47, that is the uh, prime spot. I'm glad that I'm maturing in a way to where, you know, I'm not some old creep who's running after some, uh, you know, 24-year-old. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. So, NFL news from Week 10. The New Orleans Saints, Drew Brees, quarterback Drew Brees. He's got fractured ribs and a collapsed lung. The results of medical evaluations before Monday on Brees revealed 
that he has multiple rib fractures on both sides of his chest and a collapsed lung on the right side. Ooh, jeez, man. Could you imagine this guy trying to sleep at night? Breeze is suffering from three fractured ribs on his left side and two on his right side. Now, the two broken ribs on his right side, that happened in the first half of the Saints game against the uh, San Francisco 49, 49ers. The three fractured ribs on the left side, that's believed to have occurred in a game against the Tampa Bay Buccaneers last week. So this man played a half of a football game with three broken ribs. And people up there talking about, well, how the fuck did he play with three broken ribs? Ah, they didn't show up. The three broken ribs that he sustained uh, playing the, playing the uh, Tampa Bay Buccaneers, it didn't show up on the x-ray at the time, possibly because of inflammation. I'm not a doctor, I'm just reading what it says here. But they were clearly seen on the CAT scan performed on Monday, so there you go. So, Bruce, Breeze is unsure how long he's going to be forced to miss time. He did go on Instagram talking about, hey, I feel great, I'll be back in no time. Okay, all right. All right, so, you know, Jameis Winston is now going to be the starting quarterback. So, what do you think? <laughs> I mean, New Orleans fans, what do you think? I mean, do you, do you still have, do you have that emotion? Like, all right, I mean, it could be bad. I mean, it could be better. Could be worse. I mean, in the offseason, I mean, who was out there, right? And I think as far as quarterbacks were available, think you got the best one and you know you got Sean Payton as your head coach you have a pretty strong offensive line you've got some talented receivers in Emmanuel Sanders and Michael Thomas hello this is going to be your time to step up you've been AOL this season let's go 10 catches through three games you've missed uh, multiple games because of injury you've you know hurt your ankle then you hurt your hamstring and then you got in a fight at practice which caused the team to suspend you for a game. We need that Michael Thomas that we saw last season. That would be nice. That would be a nice help for Jameis Winston, Alvin Kamara. He's going to have to step up. He's already been playing great, but he's going to have to step up his game even more. Mm. This is an important game, important stretch for Jameis Winston too. We, we saw what happened with Teddy Bridgewater when he filled in for Breeze last season when he got injured against the Rams and Bridgewater came in and directed them to a 5-0 and record while Breeze was out. Got himself a nice three-year, $63 million contract from the Carolina Panthers, mainly based on that performance to show the teams out there in the NFL that he could still play. I mean, Winston is now going to be in that position. Not only is he auditioning to get an opportunity to get paid and get an opportunity to be the starting quarterback wherever he might play next season. This is also a situation where, you know what, he could be the heir apparent to Drew Brees. Drew Brees has a nice CBS or a Fox gig waiting for him when his playing days are over. This is the second year in a row where he sustained a pretty sizable injury that's going to make him miss a multitude of games. He is 41 years old. Would you be surprised? If the New Orleans Saints won a Super Bowl, that Drew Brees said, I'm good, I'm done, I'm out. So this is also an opportunity. And even if Drew Brees comes back, I mean, this is still an opportunity for Jameis Winston to be that heir apparent to when Brees retires, if not after the 2020 season and after the 2021 season. You know, you give him pretty decent money to be in that position to make sure he doesn't go anywhere. 
So in the second half, when he filled in against the uh, 49ers, he was pretty good. One six for 10, 63 yards. He completed his first six passes, missed his next four, was sacked a few times in the red zone. Uh, a couple of times when he started dancing around and moving around, did you get a little bit nervous? Where you're sitting there going, oh, please, Jesus, either throw it or take the sack. Throw it out of bounds or take the sack, please. Don't, don't, try, to, don't try to play hero ball on us, please. Just don't. Don't go, don't go Tampa Bay Jameis on us, please. Now, Taysom Hill is also going to get some run at the quarterback position. And I think, I don't know, Sean Payton hasn't said anything. I haven't been in contact with Sean Payton like forever, like ever. So I don't know what his game plan is going to be. I don't know what his thought pattern is going to be on how he's going to use the two quarterbacks that he has available. One, James Winston, a real, no doubt about it, built for this, born for this QB, and a dual threat. He can do everything, quarterback like Taysom Hill. I, I can't see Taysom Hill right now, his value being just the quarterback. I mean, he's too valuable as a runner. He's too valuable on special teams. He's too valuable as a wide receiver. He's too valuable as a change of pace quarterback. So if you were going to have him be the starting quarterback, there's no way that he could be getting ready for some of the other things that he's going to be asked to do that's going to help his team win uh, on Sunday. I don't. He couldn't be in the wide receiver meetings. He couldn't be in the special team meetings. He couldn't be in the running back meetings. All of those places he had to go to during the week to get the game plan and get everybody on point and everything. If he's the starting quarterback, that's it. He's got to be in the quarterback room and that's about it. And I don't know how you would play him in a game without him being in any of those meetings. Maybe you could, you know, go back and call some plays that he's comfortable with. That might be great. But, you know, if I'm... Sean Payton, and I have a guy like Jameis Winston as my backup quarterback, and I have a, uh, a weapon that I could use like Taysom Hill in the responsibilities that he has and the role that he plays on the team. I'm going to be sticking with that uh, formula. But then again, I've never been an NFL head coach. I've never been an offensive mastermind, and I've never won a Super Bowl. So, And I've never worked under Bill Parcells as an offensive coordinator. So what do I know when compared to Sean Payton? But... I'm guessing that's what uh, possibly he'll do. Now, we, I spoke about Winston being, you know, a quarterback, a quarterback, a quarterback. Last season with Tampa Bay, the man threw for over 5,000 yards, threw for 33 touchdowns, but he threw for 30 fucking interceptions. <laughs> the problem. I'm highly doubting that Winston is going to get the go-ahead or the responsibilities he had in Tampa Bay to do the same type of thing that you know, in, in New Orleans. I think this this deal that he has right now with New Orleans, yeah, he'll be chucking the ball down the field a lot more than Drew Brees. I mean, if he chucks the ball down the field in a game, I don't know, once or twice, that'll be more than Drew Brees. So I think in that regard, I think they're going to be able to take some shots down the field. But, you know, this risk it or biscuit and all this type of bullshit and all this type of nonsense that, uh, you know, Winston was implored to do under Bruce Arians and Brian, Byron Leftwich. At uh, Tampa. And I don't think that uh, Sean Payton is going to give him that long of a leash to do those things. It's going to be like, look, man, here's receiver one. Also, here's option one. Here's option two. Maybe option three. If not, run or throw the ball away. If those guys aren't open, throw it away. Take a sack. Do whatever. 
Don't fucking, because it seems like, I don't know, man. I've never played quarterback in the NFL, so I don't know what it's like to be back there and facing a rush. But when it seemed like Winston would throw a lot of these interceptions, not all, but when, it, but when Winston would throw these interceptions, it would be like he would have happy feet. And his mind was racing a little bit faster than it should be. So I don't know. I don't know. But, but I think he's going to utilize the talent that he has around him from the offensive uh, skill position. So I think the opportunities for Jameis to revert back to old Jameis under the, uh, you know, with the franchise of Tampa Bay, I don't think that's going to be happening anymore. I mean, hell, you've had what now? Nine games to kind of get that out of your system. You've had, uh, you know, multiple months learning under Sean Payton to hopefully correct some of those bad habits that you had, learning under Drew Brees, learning a new system, learning a new way of doing things. So, Going into this, I'm quite sure he's going to be grounded in him that, hey, look, man, you don't need, we don't need for you to win a football game for us. We don't need for you to throw for 400 yards. We don't need for you to throw for 350 yards and four touchdowns. We don't need that stuff. What we need for you to do is complete about 18 to 22 passes a game because you're only going to get anywhere between 25 and 32 attempts per game. Rely on Alvin Kamara. Rely on Michael Thomas, rely on Jared Cook, rely on our defense by not putting us in any disadvantaged situation with turnovers, believe in the offensive line, do your thing, and play football. Not the way you played in in Tampa Bay, but go out and play football. I think the Saints will be fine. You take a look at the schedule with Winston as their quarterback coming up. They play the Falcons at home. Then they play three straight games on the road against the Broncos. Uh, then they rematch again against the Falcons. And then they play the Philadelphia Eagles. And then by that time, hopefully, probably, that um, Drew Brees will be back rip-roaring, ready to go. So if the if Drew Brees is going to be out four games and you take a look at the schedule again, the Falcons twice, the Broncos, and the Philadelphia Eagles, no worse, the Saints should finish is 2-2. Two and two. Losing on a cold day in Denver, let's say, let's just be the, let's just be, let's, let's, let's be the pessimist here. The glass has half empty. They'll lose on a cold day in Denver. They'll split games against the Falcons and then they'll beat the Philadelphia Eagles. You'll take that, right? If you're a Philadelphia Eagle fan, you'll take that. So again, Emmanuel Sanders, Michael Thomas, say hello to Jameis Winston. Alvin Kamara, say hello to Jameis Winston, the man who leads the NFL in yards from scrimmage. Say hello to the offensive line, which is one of the best in the game. Michael Thomas, come on, man. Come on, let's go. We got to get it done. You caught 145 passes last year. So far, you, uh, got, you've only uh, caught 10. Injury-wise, you should be good to go. We need you. The responsibility, we're going to need you to up your game even more than probably last year. Let's do this. For four games, you can go ahead and get it done. Four to five games, you can go ahead and get it done. Or as the late, great Lou Saban said when he was coaching the Buffalo Bills, you can get it done. You can get it done. Furthermore, you gotta get it done. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Uh-oh. I got the moving. I got the grooving. What's it, what's it time for? What's it time for? New York Jets. Jacksonville Jaguars. Dallas Cowboys. The Chargers. The Dope Skins. The Bungles. The Falcons. The Broncos, 
the Houston Texans, what time is it? Carolina Panthers, what time is it? Oh, yeah, you know what time it is. Play the music. Oh, yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you. It's time for thanking for Trevor. Oh, my goodness. I'm so choked up here. <coughs> thanking for Trevor. Failing for fields. Yes, sirree. Here we go. Here we go. All you teams who aren't lucky enough to be fans of teams like the uh, Kansas City defending champions, like the Pittsburgh Steelers, like the Green Bay Packers, like the New Orleans Saints, all of those teams who look like they could be contenders, like the Tampa Bay Buccaneers for a Super Bowl, for championships, for us lowly losers who are fans of like the New York Jets, the Jacksonville Jaguars, the Denver Broncos, the Washington Snyderskins, the Dallas Cowboys, yes. This is our time. This is our moment to shine. This is the only thing that we care about. Do you think I give a damn about what's happening with the Super Bowl? Do you think I really care about teams putting themselves in the position to win Super Bowls? Are you kidding me as a fan of the NFL? Fuck no. I don't give a damn about the Buccaneers, even though I want them to lose because Antonio Brown should not be rewarded by getting himself a Super Bowl ring. I don't give a damn about the New Orleans Saints. I don't give a damn about Kansas City. I don't give a damn about the Las Vegas Raiders. I don't give a damn about the uh, uh, Pittsburgh Steelers. I don't give a damn about any of those teams that are good. I only give a damn about my Washington flub skins, my Washington dysfunctional skins, my Washington, I still can't believe I'm a fan of their skins, my Washington, their embarrassment skins. That's the only team that I'm really, really concerned about. So since we're not going to be winning a championship, since we're not anywhere close of winning a championship, since we don't have nearly the talent anywhere, except maybe the defensive line possibly, to win a championship, I want this team to lose. So while you guys were rooting for your teams to win on Sunday, I was rooting hard, hard, for the Detroit Lions to beat the uh, Washington Snyderskins. And man, was it close. I was dancing in the street like Martin the Vandellas. And then I was dancing on the ceiling like Lionel Richie when the um, Lions went up 24-3. But those sorry motherfuckers almost gave that game up. Jeez, man. And it was important. We needed to lose that game. Because we're tanking for Trevor. We're failing for Fields. I'm not going to be happy. I'm not going to be happy with Lance. With Trey Lance? No, 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 no. I'll be content. I want Fields. That's my Super Bowl. That's my Vince Lombardi trophy. Is with the number one, number two pick in the draft, the Washington Sorry Skins select Trevor Lawrence from Clemson University. Or with the number two pick in the draft, the Washington Dope Skins select Justin Fields, quarterback from Ohio State University. That's what I want to fucking hear. I don't want to hear drafting tackle Perry Sewell from Oregon. I don't want to hear drafting Jamar Chase from LSU. I don't want to hear that shit because we decided to be stupid and finish 6-10 and 10 or 5-11 five or 4-12. Five and 11 or four and 12. No, no. 
Come on, man. Whatever it takes, we got to be in a position. If we don't get the main prize, the grand prize, which is Trevor Lawrence, I want fields. I want fields. I want fields. I want fields. So, games of importance this weekend. We've got the Jets at the at the Los Angeles Chargers, which is great because both of those teams are right in the mix in terms of uh, Washington, the uh, draft order. So, this is going to be a win-win. As long as we do the right thing and lose, we're going to be playing the Cincinnati Bengals. Now, look, Ron, don't be bullshitting me, man. Alex Smith, I'm telling you right now, don't be bullshitting me. Don't be going up there and be throwing for like 390 yards and have the type of game that you had in the second half against the Detroit Lions. I want more of the incompetent inaction, the inept action that I saw in the first half against the Detroit Lions. I want that carried over to the second half. Do what you did in the second half against the Lions. Leave that in the suburbs of Auburn Hills. Drive by where, drive by where Eminem grew up and leave that game plan there. In those streets. Go down to Wayne County and leave that style of play and leave that type of uh, play over there. Don't be taking that bullshit out of uh, Detroit and then bringing it over and play against the uh, Cincinnati Bengals. Shit, we might win that game. We need, now look, Cincinnati, they have their quarterback, so they're not going to be drafting a quarterback. The Los Angeles Chargers, they have themselves a quarterback, so. Win or lose, hey, it doesn't matter with them because they've already got Justin Herbert. They're not looking to take a quarterback. Um, the Miami Dolphins, who own the Houston Texans pick, right now Houston is currently 2-7. and seven. Thank you, fucking Bill O'Brien. Again, can't believe that motherfucker traded DeAndre Hopkins after he made that fucking catch against the goddamn Buffalo Bills and we got a goddamn second-round pick. Amari Cooper gets traded from the fucking Oakland Raiders at the time to the Dallas Cowboys. Oakland gets themselves a first-round fucking pick for uh, Amari Cooper, but this dumbass Bill O'Brien is going to fucking send DeAndre Hopkins to the goddamn Arizona Cardinal for a goddamn washed-up second-round pick and a running back? Are you fucking kidding me? I feel you. Houston Texans, we have a fucking franchise, generational type quarterback and goddamn Deshaun Watson, and he's going to send one of the best, if not the best wide receiver in the game, in his prime, during Deshaun Watson's prime, for a fucking second round pick and a goddamn running back? <laughs> I, feel, I feel your pain, Houston Texans. <laughs> try to be art. Try to be a Washington football fan for for a change. So look, the, the Miami Dolphins have the Houston Texans uh, pick. They're two and seven. They've got two us, so they don't need a quarterback. Carolina, they're only one game ahead. They're sneaky, man. They're only a half a game uh, behind, you know, Washington for them. And as much as you know, Teddy Bridgewater has been great. They're not going to be turning down Justin Fields or Trevor Lawrence. So it's still a tight. It's still anybody's ball game. In terms of who could be the number one and number two teams drafting. So, you know, Jacksonville, I was very encouraged by the performance they gave against the Green Bay Packers. I think if they can, you know, continue that type of play, that they can get at least another one or two wins. And we're going to need that. But it scared me, that second half against Detroit. That can't have any type of carryover. Especially, you know, playing against, again, a team that's beatable in the Cincinnati Bungles. Now... You know, what's what's uh, Joe Burrow going to do? What's that offensive line going to do for Cincinnati? We've got ourselves a pretty good defensive line. I want to thank Chase Young for his stupidity on the play where he roughed the passer, Matthew Stafford, which put Detroit in the position that they could to win 
the football game. If that game goes into overtime, Washington's going to win it. So I really appreciate Chase Young making that boneheaded play to uh, ensure our chances of losing. So thank you, Chase. Keep up the good work on that. You get you get the game ball on that one. So, um, you know, Denver's another sneaky team. I mean, they're they're cruising for a season where it looks like they might finish 4-12. and 12. So don't count them out. Drew Locke is nice, but are you going to keep him when you could have someone like a Justin Fields or a Trevor Lawrence? So <clears throat> there you go, man. Let's keep on doing it. Washington, let's keep on going. Let's keep on losing because I don't give a damn about, I don't want to see four and 12. I don't want to see a number five draft pick. I don't want to see a number seven draft pick. I, Ron, coach, I know you're talking that shit about. We're still in the playoffs and so we can do all that shit. I understand what you're saying. I, I get it. But come on, man. Really? We're going to be sitting up there popping champagne bottles and we win the division with a 6-10 and 10 record? Really? We're going to go there? We're going to deal with that type of nonsense? You know that 80% of these players on this team, when the team gets ready to win, when the team gets ready to be serious, hopefully, in another two to three years, you know that this 80% of this team, the players on the team, aren't going to be on this squad. So who gives a fuck about this season, man? This season is all about getting ourselves in the position to do what? Get the most important player in sports today, a franchise quarterback. We've got two, right off the bat, two pretty good prospects. Trevor Lawrence, Justin Fields. The way the Jets are playing, looks like they're pretty much sewn up to get that number one pick. I, there's no way I can see them winning another two or three games this season. I just, they haven't, they haven't won one. So I can't, for the life of me, in the final seven games, seeing them go two and five or three and four. I mean, it'd be great if they did, but I just don't see it happening. And with the Cowboys, Andy Dalton's supposed to be coming back. That Thanksgiving game between Washington and Dallas, man, it takes on new meaning. I mean, normally you're speaking about two teams fighting for the division titles and everything. No, this game is going to be about fighting to see who's going to be drafting themselves a quarterback that can bring them up to a level to where they're going to be competing for championships. So, <sighs> Feeling for Fields, tanking for Trevor. Thank you. Hello. Sexual harassment claim uncovered at Dan Snyder's Native American Foundation. Good God almighty. Mm. <coughs> Excuse me. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. I really got to talk about this. I really got to embarrass myself again by saying I'm a fan of this team by mentioning this. <sighs> okay, all right, all right, all right. Sexual harassment claim uncovered at Dan Snyder's Native American Foundation. The Washington Post reported this, reported on this today. Oh, I hate talking about these things, but you got to do what you got to do. Let me see here. An unidentified female employee of Snyder's Original American Foundation accused Executive Director Gary Edwards of persistent sexual harassment in 2014. A brief internal investigation apparently found no evidence, but after she filed a claim with the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, the team chose to pay her a settlement. No, Michael Jackson didn't sleep with any boys. We just you know, paid these kids millions and millions of dollars not to ever mention it again. Snyder founded the Washington Bullshit Skins Original uh, American Foundation in 2014 in response to increasing pressure to change the name of its team. He appointed Gary Edwards, former Secret Service agent and chief executive of the National Native American Law Enforcement Association, 
to run it. So guess what happened later that year, later that same year, a female employee wrote a letter to the team's single human resource staffer accusing Edwards of touching her in offensive and unwelcome ways, giving her expensive gifts and asking her personal questions that made her uncomfortable. She returned the gifts, which included an $849 coach suitcase and a $600 pair of cowboy boots to the team. And the founder's only other female employee told the Post that Edwards also harassed her. Good God, oh fuck. This team is... Geez. She noticed that Edwards gave them clerical, as far as, you know, discriminating. She noticed that Edwards gave them clerical tasks to work on while the foundation's male employee was given substantial legal assignments. Hmm. What is the... I mean... I don't know, man. The NFL the NFL. And, you know, damn the NFL. Damn me. Damn you. Damn the players. Damn every male. Damn society. For again. This motherfucker's gonna get away with this shit. Some untoward bullshit like this is going to go unpunished by uh, the NFL isn't gonna do shit. And the players in the NFL aren't gonna do shit they ain't going to say shit. I'm not going to do shit because I'm still going to be rooting for this fucking ass team and hoping these guys do well. People watching the game, betting on the game, they ain't going to do shit because they don't give a fuck because either Washington ain't their team, so they don't give a fuck, and they enjoy football, so they don't give a fuck. And I'm right there with you. So I'm just as fucking pathetic as the rest of y'all. I put myself right smack dab in there to say that, God damn it, I still want this fucking team to do well. Jeez. Oh, Lord have mercy, man. It sucks. It sucks. It sucks. It sucks. But, you know, I don't know, man. I don't know how many more transgressions that can go on before the NFL does anything. And look, Snyder can sit there and be like, this has nothing to do with my football team. This has something to do with another one of my businesses. I mean, this has really, I mean, it has little to do with the football team. So I don't know how the NFL can do anything about that. The Native American, whatever, whatever, allegiance has really nothing to do with the everyday, day-to-day situation dealing with the football team. So this is a whole different entity altogether. So the NFL can't fucking do shit. But then again, when this stuff comes out, it is an embarrassment to the league. I mean, Ben Roethlisberger was suspended. Other players were suspended for basically acting like jackasses and embarrassing the shield, embarrassing the league. I don't know how, once again, another case of sexual harassment concerning this team under the ownership of this fucking buffoon known as Daniel Snyder, rich, brilliant, billionaire, but one lousy human being in a lot of areas. I don't know how, once again, he can embarrass the league like this and continue to still hold on to this franchise, or at least, at the very least, not have any punishment done to him. But then again, where's the outrage? Where's the outrage? Where is that same venom and vigor and enthusiasm that have Washington change the nickname that they have when it... Where's that same vigor when it comes to this situation right here? Another woman being sexually harassed. Another woman being oppressed at the workplace. Another woman being marginalized and is like, fuck it, I don't give a fuck. Nothing's going to happen. Because if nothing happens, that's basically what you're saying to these women and women in general. Guess what? Me Too movement and all that kind of bullshit? Eh. Nice slogan. You can march a little bit. Go out there, get your voices heard a little bit. 
Where's the proof in the pudding when it comes to this type of stuff? And we were really serious about this type of stuff when it concerns women. And in this tirade, I'm including myself in this also. I'm just as culpable, I'm just as guilty as the rest of you guys who are going to sit there and be like, eh, you know, as long as they, uh, you know, get the number two draft pick and you can get Justin Fields, eh, you know, she can always get another job somewhere else. Or, you know, sweetheart, just, you know, just the way it is, you know. I don't know. I don't know. Way to end the one day. Way to end the show on such a wonderful, uplifting note, huh? Jeez. All right, I'm going to save the NBA for a little bit later. I was going to talk about um, the Milwaukee Bucks and their nonsense and their trade, but you know what? It is now time for me to go. Um, time for me to watch guys' grocery games. Can't miss that. So I'm going to sign off and say, Sayonara. Goodbye. I'm so glad that we had this time together. Hey, really, y'all. Um, I mean, especially after that um, news that I just read, once again, concerning women being objectified, being disrespected. Look, 55% of white women voted for a guy who fucking made his whole fucking career, his life, his fame, his fortune doing that type of shit. 8% of black women voted for a motherfucker like that. So women got their own, like, you know, groups and look in the mirrors and discussion groups and, you know, team meetings amongst y'all to get this thing straightened out. But as someone who's on the opposite side of the gender track, I mean, we've got to start treating women just better, man. We just got to start in the workplace and just, they're the backbone of this fucking country, man. The women are the backbone of this world. James Brown said it first. James Brown said it great. It's a man's world, but it wouldn't mean nothing without a woman or a girl. So we've got to take that in consideration. And when I see shit like this happen, at least for black folks, I mean, you know, why are we not as outraged as this, as we are, if this was a white guy putting down, disrespecting, objectifying, you know, discriminating against a black person? If this happened to Jamel Hill, if this happened to Cherry, Cherry Champion, if this happened to any other black woman, black folks in certain places would be up in arms and be screaming and yelling, and they should, and they should, and they should, and they should. And I would be right there yelling and screaming and yelling with them. Why can't we do this in the totality of just women, man? Like, why can't we just get this through our heads that women should not be treated this way? I don't know. I don't know. But do better. I'm going to try to do better. I'm going to try to do better. Starts off with me. I'm going to try to do better. So there you go. All right. I'm going to end the program with a little bit of music. My little bit of music is sitting at the dock of the bay by the great, the legendary, the awesome, the fabulous, my hero, my musical idol, Otis Redding. This is not the one that's being played on the radio stations that was put on vinyl and everything like that. This is take two of sitting at the dock of the bay more raw version it doesn't have the seagulls it doesn't have anything like that when otis died in that plane crash on december 10th 1967 and i have to give my shout out my special dedication that there is going to be a show that i always do on december 10th was speaking about two of the guys that i really admire as musicians and human beings uh from the past sam cook and otis redding who died i guess what three years apart otis went down uh, December 10th, 1967, Sam Cooke was shot the morning of December 11th, 1964. But those are just two people whose deaths and lives and contributions and everything I found fascinating and awe-inspiring and everything like that. So as part of my podcast, when I divvy from talking about sports 
that's what I focus on. So just coming up, just to let you know, I'll have my special December 10th podcast, you know, given my special dedications and my thanks and my thoughts and feelings about the greatness of Otis Redding and Sam Cooke. But um, yeah, this was take two. And when Otis died, when his plane went down in Lake Monoma in Wisconsin, he was on this gig from, uh, he played at the Cleveland, he played in Cleveland and he was going over to Madison, Wisconsin to play at the Uptown Factory. I think that's what the name of the club was. It's still there. Um, his plane went down in Lake Monoma. He was found at the bottom of the lake the next day and everything like that. Um, the song had not been completed and he was going to go back to Stacks to finish the record, which is one of the reasons why when you hear the whistling, when you hear that whistling, it was because, you know, he had to run, he had to go ahead, catch the plane to catch a gig, and he was like, I'll just finish the rest of the song when I come back, so this is just the way we're going to end it, and um, Steve Cropper decided he was going to keep it, song was, um, sitting at the dock of the bay, was inspired by him listening to the Beatles, Sgt. Pepper album, when he was on a houseboat in Sausalito after tearing up the joint at the uh, Monterey Pop Festival that summer in 67. So he was inspired by listening to the Beatles the same way that he was inspired by listening to uh, Sam Cooke live at the Copa to go ahead and move his career in a different direction. If you notice, with that song, it concentrated so much more on the lyrics and in terms of Otis making that change, Otis was always a guy who was always about the beat, always about the groove, always about the rhythm, and really didn't care at all about the lyrics. And because of the fact that, you know, he was a little bit country, and some of the times the words weren't as, uh, shall we say, articulate as, you know, someone like a Levi Stubbs or someone like a Frank Sinatra or someone like a Smokey Robinson or someone like a Sam Cooke or something like that, who really spoke and sang so eloquently and articulately, on the articulately, huh? How about that? Spoke so well when they were singing the song. Otis Redding wasn't like that. So Otis was like, you know, fuck the lyrics. I'm just going to get into the groove. So a lot of times when you listen to his records and you hear, what was he saying? That's kind of like by design. But um, to get his career going in a different direction because he was going to do some other things, start also start producing people and start doing the things that Sam Cooke wanted to do before he was murdered, um, that Otis was going to change his style and he was going to go in the direction of what the Beatles were doing, which was to concentrate on lyrics and other things. So that's the reason, that's how Doc of the Bay was was formulated and put together. So that was basically what you're going to be hearing as the basic foundation. And uh, he was going to collaborate again with Steve Cropper, who also helped with some of the lyrics of Doc of the Bay and such. They were going to finish that up when Otis got back from uh, the tour, which he never got back from because, well, his plane went into Lake Monoma and took a lot of the uh, barcades with him. So God rest those guys. God rest the great Otis Redding. God bless everybody. So, yeah, man. Next time. Till the next time. Music. I'm
headed for the Frisco Bay. Cause I've got nothing to live for. Look like nothing's gonna come my way. So I'm just gonna sit on the dock of the bay. Watching the tide roll away. Ooh, sitting on the dock of the bay. On the dock of the bay 